Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 22nd episode of the Not A Cast entitled The Wolf Blood, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Aria 2 in which Arya Stark gets a much needed pep talk from dad. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., and Wolfman Zach. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you, as always. And as we say in every podcast, our spoiler warning, we'll be talking about all five published books, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So as we're recording this... We have released our Stannis episode, that is the fate of Stannis Baratheon, called A Burning Crown on our Patreon. For all of our $5 a month patrons and above, we appreciate everyone's contributions to us. And one of the other benefits, as we say in most every podcast these days, is that those who contribute $10 a month or more have the ability to ask us questions. So we have a number of really great questions this week, and we're going to plow right through them. And they're also really good. We're not just going to plow right through them. We'll, we'll, we'll address them in depth, as we always do. So our first question comes from one of our sworn swords, Craig M., who asks, since we're in King's Landing for a bit, that is for the regular not a cast, was there any settlement prior to the Aegonfort? It seems odd it wouldn't already be settled being in prime real estate like that. Yeah, I, I agree. What do you think, Emmett? Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, it's the, uh, the Blackwater Rush. It seems like it would be a natural area. I mean, there's a reason Aegon landed there and eventually made his capital there and that the capital expanded not only because of the seat of government, but because of such prime real estate. Yeah. Uh, as Craig says. Yeah. And it's also interesting to note that there's a number of castles around King's Landing that seem to be there from prior times. We have Castle Rosby is around there. We have a few other yes. smaller settlements around there as well. And there is a mention in the World of Ice and Fire that I think might be of interest to, to Craig and others who are interested in this question, where the quote is, quote, where once only fishing boats were seen, now cogs and galleys from Old Town, Lannisport, and the Free Cities, and even the Summer Isles began to appear as the flow of trade shifted from Duskendale and Maidenpool to King's Landing. So to me, that indicates that where Aegon landed was likely potentially a fishing village or town that, that grew up around there because it is such prime real estate. And it would be probably a good place to fish since you have both your river fish and you also have your sea fish as well, so you can pull in great catches. <laughs> That's stupid. Um, from uh, from from both the sea and, and the river. So I, I think that it was likely settled and inhabited prior to Aegon landing there, but it was probably not as settled and inhabited uh, as we find in King's Landing, since we know by the start of A Game of Thrones that this settlement has grown to a full city that is now 500,000 strong in terms of its population. Yeah, it makes sense, of course, that you know fishing would be the key economy of the area and even a huge part of King's Landing as it, as it grows. When Catelyn comes in on the Storm Dancer, when Tyrion as Hand of the King and then as Master of Coin is walking around the city, checking up on things, there's always emphasis on, on the harbor and fishermen and people selling fish. So it makes sense that that's the, the industry that develops earliest and strongest in that area. Yeah, yeah. And it also works to, to build trade as, as well, that the place yes. works now so that you have cogs and galleys from Old Town and Lannisport, the Free Cities, and even the Summer Isles showing up in King's Lane. Because it is the largest city in Westeros, it supersedes Old Town fairly quickly from what we understand from the World of Ice and Fire in terms of its population, in terms of its growth. And I think that it'll continue to be a, a trading port and be a place where goods and will flow to and from Westeros 
at least until the long night falls on Westeros yet again. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, you could argue it's something of a world-building era that the two biggest cities in Westeros prior to King's Landing were on the opposite side of the continent from Essos. Yeah. Uh, that, that is something of a head-scratcher, even though, of course, you know, trade doesn't always work on the most uh, obvious logical routes. Depends on, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's easiest for people and where profits can be found, but King's Landing, you get the feeling that King's Landing f- filled that niche, that pre-existing hole in the market of a large trading city uh, within easy sailing distance of the free cities. So it makes it makes sense not only that it grew, but that it grew so quickly. Yes. Uh, superseded the old town in terms of population, as you say. Yes, absolutely. Our next question from another one of our sworn swords, uh, Darren Swords, asks, Hello again. Loved the Stannis mm-hmm. episode. Thank you. I have a question regarding the way that the series adapts aspects of the book's plot to the screen, for both screen time and plot complexity reasons. One that I have been wondering about since the end of Season 7 is whether or not D&D adapted the falling of the wall via a horn of winter by twofold solution. First, destroying the magical ward of the wall by allowing a marked brand to cross, followed by the destroying of the physical wall by using an undead dragon. The (laughs) clues of various horns throughout the series have been quite obvious, but the show completely sidetracked it. I understand it could be too deep fantasy for the common viewer, but I also entertain the notion that George Martin could be building up this fantasy element to subvert the genre, as he has done so with other fantasy tropes. I suppose this also extends to if you think Danny goes north of the wall on the dumb but satisfying Suicide Squad (laughs) mission, uh, then Night's King gets an undead dragon. If he had the horn, he would not need a dragon, potentially. What do you two think? Mm, That's quite a question to chew on. What do you think, Jeff? Well... As I think we both would agree that the Horn of Jorman was taken south by Samuel Tarly, south of the Wall and on down to Old Town, because that is one of the few things that Sam actually gets to Old Town with. If you remember at the end of A Feast for Crows, in order to pay for the completion of his passage to Old Town from Bravos, Samuel Tarly is stripped of everything down to basically his cloak his boots, his underwear, and of course that broken horn, which of course means nothing, right? It means absolutely nothing. It's broken and everything like that. I think it's very important that Martin emphasizes that the horn is there. And in a Sospeak Martin from a few years ago, he refused to confirm whether the horn that Sam has is the Horn of Jorman, which to me opens up all sorts of possibilities that it is the Horn of Jorman. You know, it's it's funny. I, I really thought that when the Night King touched Bran back in season six, that it would have ramifications out so that the others could pass through the wall. I think it's a really great and interesting theory that Darren puts forward that the wall came down twofold. One, that the ward was broken by Bran crossing the wall, and then they resurrect the dead dragon to actually bring down the physical wall. So you take down the magical force first, and then you take down the physical side of the wall. So I think it's a really great theory. I, I had never even thought of it that way, but I think it seems accurate. In fact, I thought in season six that that would be the way that the others would get south of the wall in the show was that Bran was coming south and he had broken the ward because they have that scene from season six where right before you have the hold the door episode that um, or during the hold the door episode that the Night King touches Bran and that is what breaks the ward that protects the cave of the three-eyed raven. There's a three-eyed crow in the books, three-eyed raven in the show. And that allows the White Walkers and the and the Whites to attack Blood Raven, or I guess not Blood Raven in the show, the Three Head Ravens Cave in in the show. I thought that was going to be the way they got south of the Wall. I don't know. I not not to like get a little bit too off topic, but I wasn't entirely satisfied with the the dragon being resurrected and taking down the wall. That seemed a little too cliched. I guess I don't know. How do, I, what, what did you think about all that back from season seven? I know you were writing a lot for Deadspin back in back in the day, and you did review that episode. 
Uh, we'll have to link to that's that. That's true. I love the imagery of it. Uh, yeah, it's obviously very metal. I like the execution. Yeah, it felt a little like they were working backwards from the image they wanted to have and then didn't necessarily think through the plot mechanics to get there. Uh, you know, it brings up the obvious question of what the other's plan was before a, a dragon showed up north of the wall. Yeah. But of course, that question exists in the books as well. We don't really know what the other's plan for getting south of the wall is at this point. So that's fair. Uh, as far as Darren's question goes, I, I, I agree. I think my personal theory is that Euron Greyjoy is the Night's King slash Bloodstone Emperor slash other apocalyptic figure. Yes. Uh, in the books, he's the version of that this time around, so to speak. You know, the whole time is a wheel thing. So my personal suspicion is that the show kind of stripped the main metaphysical functions of Euron in the story, uh, namely ensorcelling a dragon in some way via Dragonbinder and bringing down the, the wall with the Horn of Jorman, the, the two horns, one of ice, one of fire, fitting the series title perfectly. Yes. I think the show basically gave those functions to uh, their Night King. And Martin has commented in this direction, I don't think... Uh, Night's King himself, that his historical character, is going to be in the books. Yeah. From what, what we gathered, he was a, a human character who was got kind of seduced by and ensorcelled by the others. And he he's more of a consort than their leader. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, we could be we could be told differently. Martin could pull the rug out from underneath us at any time. But my suspicion for the books is that it's going to be more like Euron is fulfilling that historical role rather than the literal dude coming back. Yes. And I think the, the show kind of copy and pasted that in the same way I suspect they copy and pasted John over uh, Stannis's story in The Winds of Winter. Yeah. I, th- I think Darren's absolutely correct that that might be too a little too esoteric and Dungeons and Dragons-like <laughs> for, for your average viewer, the, the magical horns, because, you know, the magical horns doing magical things is ex- is extremely fantasy. That might not necessarily translate to i'm not insulting a general audience i'm just saying that's that's a that's a specific trope that some people might just dismiss as as overly fantasy um as far as martin subverting the genre with this this is an area i think where maybe we've had too much time to marinate yeah in in the story and it's going to be a little more direct than we than we think it is because i think the subversion is that the real horn of jorman isn't the one lance had isn't as torment admits the, the the huge one with the runes that melisandre burned that wasn't the real one. The real one is the extremely plain, easy to overlook, unremarkable one that Sam has. Which it's the classic Indiana Jones thing, where the Holy Grail is is the, the humble cup of the carpenter, right? Not the uh, ornate goblet. I think that's that's the deal that Martin is going for here. And I think the subversion with Dragonbinder is that Victorian is going to think he's taking control of the dragon, <laughs> but it's actually going to belong to Euron or not work at all or something like that. There's the notion that Martin subverts fancy tropes in terms of just breaking them apart, and that's not really usually what he does. No. It's not usually that it means nothing. It just it's going to mean something slightly different from what we think. It's going to be executed slightly differently from what we think. It's not that it's meaningless and we should feel bad for thinking it's going to be meaningful. Generally speaking, Martin doesn't work like that. No, I agree. And what's really interesting, too, is that the show I felt early on was going in the same direction that Martin was going, that the horn would have something huge to do with the plot because they do have that in season two where John and Sam discover the broken horn and you have this haunting music around it that they build into it basically becomes an orphan plot line in the show. It doesn't go anywhere. And in fact, I had, I, I can't tell you when, what actually happened to the horn that they found in the fist of the first men besides that they took possession of it. And then from there, I'm not sure exactly what happened. So it, it felt like early on that D and D and the show writers were going for a similar 
way to bring down the wall early on. At least they were featuring that storyline from A Clash of Kings in season two of Game of Thrones. I don't exactly know what happened there, but my theory is that when David Benioff and Dan Weiss sat down with George R. R. Martin back in 2013 to talk about the end game of A Song of Ice and Fire and the end state of characters, that they realized that there was way too much plot that they could feature in seven or eight seasons of Game of Thrones. And they decided to whittle it down to streamline something. So they probably knew that the wall was going to come down. I think that was something that Martin was planning from the get-go. I think that they wanted the others to have a dragon at some level. I think that they also, again, this is in 2013, I think they also saw that the horn was going to be a lot more of a major plot point in The Winds of Winter and into A Dream of Spring. But they they wanted to kind of ground the series a little more realistically than the, what George was doing. But I agree with you, Emmett, that the horn works in, in like a fantasy si- sense, but it's much more direct than simply some sort of esoteric Dungeons and Dragons. They, they blow the horn from Old Town and, and, the, and the wall comes down because of the magic and the warding against the wall is is um, is ended in, in some way. I think that's that's probably a little bit too magic side for what uh, the, the plot line that they wanted to go for. But I think they always knew the wall was going to come down and they ended up streamlining it so that a dragon takes down the wall. It's not 100% clear that Bran crossing the wall unwarded the wall in Game of Thrones. I thought that's what they were going for in season six and season seven, but it didn't turn out to be the case. It just seemed like the dragon was the way they got south of the wall. Now, of course, that might be something that gets explored in season eight, whether Bran comes to realize that him coming south of the wall helped cause its fall. But I don't know. I think there's there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack and there's there's not a lot of show material left to go. You got six episodes in season eight to kind of untangle all of these plot lines, and I'm not sure they're going to untangle all of them or clarify things that might need to be clarified because they simply don't have enough time. But I do hope that in the books, George has the time. Yeah, I agree with you that this is probably an orphaned plot line in terms of the Horn of Winter. You're right, they, they, they had the haunting music playing when it was found on the face. They had this shot that was just a close-up of the horn itself. It seemed very portentous, like it was something as big was going to happen, and then they dropped it, which happens... I wonder if they maybe have felt more confident in their own storytelling as they've expanded uh, beyond the current amount of books yeah. and started telling the story that hasn't shown up in the books yet. And as they've you know made a lot of money and gotten a lot of praise, <laughs> maybe they feel uh, more able to kind of stretch their muscles and, and cut and paste things to suit their needs. If I'm right about Euron, that makes sense as an adaptational choice to kind of uh, assign his major impact on the story to the uh, others themselves. Yeah, uh, I think I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah, but yeah, I. I wouldn't necessarily say the show is trying to be more grounded because there's still not much grounded about an ice demon on a dragon burning down a 700 foot high wall. But it is, it feels more metal and less kind of stuffy than the magic horn stuff. Magic horn. I mean, I love it, but the magic horn stuff has the potential to feel kind of like a dry, fussy, old fashioned kind of fantasy. Whereas the, the other on a dragon melting on the wall is more like, yeah, metal album cover kind of fantasy. Yeah. Which I think, May, might sell better to a general audience, but we'll have to wait for season eight to see how they pull this off. And obviously we'll have plenty of comparisons to make when and if we get wins of winner. Yes, absolutely. Could been, which is of course coming next week or the week after. I can't remember which when, when George said he's going to release We're it. Counting down the hours, folks. Any minute now, any minute now. So thank you, Sir Darren, for the question. Absolutely fantastic question. Lots of thoughts on it. Our next question comes from Sir Snark Knight, who asks, Hey guys, in Eddard 4, when Littlefinger asks Ned, quote, your wife is inside, Ned draws his dagger on Littlefinger, but Sir Roderick interrupts before it goes any further. What do you guys think Ned's plan was there? 
kill the master of coin in the streets of King's Landing on his first day on the job? Or was it that George was trying to recreate Hamilton versus Burr? Thank you. And I love this podcast. Well, thank you for loving this podcast and for your great question. What do you think, Emmett? Yeah, that's a fair point. Obviously, Ned is losing his temper at that point. I don't know how much he's thinking coherently at all. It's worth mentioning that Ned has had a really bad day. He's exhausted. He's cranky. He's sweaty. He's just been climbing around. He's not exactly in his best frame of mind. No. So I think if he genuinely did kill Littlefinger in that moment, I'm sure he'd regret it immediately. And yes, that would be something and that would have to deal with politically. I'm not sure the fallout. I don't know if he'd necessarily get much fallout from Robert. It would be interesting to see the ripple effects on Littlefinger's whole corrupt scheme, all the people he's hired and bribed and everything he's done. That would be kind of fascinating to witness what would happen to all of that if Littlefinger just suddenly died. Yeah. That would be very interesting. I like the idea about Martin trying to recreate Hamilton versus Burr there. I think that's an interesting comparison. At the last Ice and Fire Con, uh, a lot of people in the fandom, including some of our friends, did this great production of the story of A Song of Ice and Fire uh, set to the tune of the songs from Hamilton, the musical, <laughs> which was a, a lot of fun. So that question put me in mind to that. But yeah, I think I, I, don't, uh, I don't know a ton about Hamilton versus Burr, but I think, I think that's an interesting comparison. Martin does like to remix history, so I think that's entirely possible. But yeah, I don't think Ned really had a plan. It was heat of the moment, drawing the dagger, putting it to Littlefinger's throat and being interrupted by Sir Roderick. Because, you know, the thing about all of these points is that George is thumbing the scale to so that Littlefinger has to survive, so that Ned has to meet the headsman's the headman's sword at the end of A Game of Thrones. There's an alternate universe where Littlefinger dies and you have all these interesting ripple effects, as Emma talked about. But the AU for that is just not the story that we got and Littlefinger had to survive in order to progress the story forward. And yeah, I, I don't know that George was trying to recreate Hamilton versus Burr. It was more of, he liked the imagery of Ned drawing a knife on Littlefinger and was maybe, and this is, this is kind of a little bit out there, so bear with me, that he was maybe hinting, maybe drawing a comparison between the knife that tried to end Bran's life and the knife that little that Ned is holding up to Littlefinger's throat. Because as we find out in a few paragraphs beyond that, in Eddard 4, that the knife that was sent to kill Bran Stark gets brought up and Littlefinger tells Ned to throw the knife away and forget about it and all these things. So I think that might be something that George might have been going for. I don't see the Hamilton versus Burr comparison, but it's an interesting one. I mean, it's something definitely to ask George if you ever get the chance to. I agree that's a parallel there. I think it's also a parallel to when Littlefinger uh, holds the knife to Ned's throat yes. in the throne room yes. during the downfall. That's definitely a setup for that. So thank you, Sir Snark Knight, for the question. <laughs> Another one of our sworn swords, Sir Travis M. asks, My question has to do with George's level of involvement with the potential HBO prequel as well as the ability for it to provide further answers and clues to many of the mysteries of Planetos. Some context. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but the World of Ice and Fire book grew from George's interactions with fans, especially Elio and Linda. He had a general idea of many of the characters of end events in the history, but he hadn't set it down and pieced it all together and developed it fully. Now, we know George is involved in the four to five successor shows, but we don't know how significantly. We know he and Brian Cogman were working on one directly, but we also know that he has discussed concepts with other screenwriters and developers. All of this brings me to my question. Could the Age of Heroes slash Long Night prequel be an opportunity, like the World of Ice and Fire, for George to flesh out some of the real backstory to his world? Further, do we want some of the mysteries answered? Finally, do you expect anything significant to occur in Game of Thrones' final season that will be a real shocking moment for the audience, like something done by the White Walkers or John and Danny, giving an opening for the prequel to explore why events transpired as they did in Season 8? Thanks. The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Yes to all the above. Yes. What do you say, Jeff? 
Um, yes. <laughs> no, I... Yes, it's going to be an opportunity to flesh out the backstory. Yes, we want some mysteries answered. And yes, if they're going forward with that, I'm sure there will be something in the final season to give an opening for the prequel. Absolutely. So just to clarify one thing about the development of the world of Ice and Fire, it came as a result of Elio Garcia Jr., that is the one of George's co-authors from the world of Ice and Fire, traveling cross-country from Florida, I believe he's originally from Florida, to New Mexico and visiting George in Santa Fe and George basically telling him, and this is, I think, like the 2006 time frame. Well, I'm really busy with the Dance of Dragons trying to trying to finish that book up, you know, by the end of the year. Right. Of course. Which didn't happen. Of course. Of course. <laughs> so would you and Linda like to take on this task of writing the world of ice and fire for me? This kind of history book about all the history that's behind the Targaryens in the world at large. And Elio said, yes, absolutely. I would love to. And he started doing basically some him and Linda apparently did some note taking and they were drawing some stuff from the existing material at that point, which was, of course, the first four books of the series and some of the Sospeak Martins, which they had created in the late 90s. They were taking some information from there. And so they cr started crafting some stuff. And then after George finished A Dance with Dragons, like he set his pen to work in terms of writing The World of Ice and Fire, apparently writing something to the tune of 400,000 words for The World of Ice and Fire. And really, he wrote most of the book. Elio and Linda, they did write some stuff for the book. Um, I think the thing they wrote primarily was the stuff from after the reign of Aegon III. So George wrote all the stuff about the Age of Heroes, all the stuff about the Long Night, all of the stuff about the early history, and all the stuff about Essos. And they edited it and condensed it significantly. But then they also, they I think they wrote all of this stuff post egg on the third Targaryen, which is all the stuff that George wrote. So everything you're going to see in Fire and Blood Volume 1 is all of George's material that has been edited by Elio and, and Linda at some level. So that's basically the how the World of Ice and Fire came into, came into existence. To answer the other questions, could the Age of Heroes, the Long Night prequel, be an opportunity like the World of Ice and Fire for George to flesh out some of the backstory to his world? Maybe. I'll put my cards on the table. I'm a little concerned about the Age of Heroes story in the sense that from what George has said about the work that Jane Goldman is doing for that successor show or, or that prequel show, it doesn't sound like he actually has a lot of involvement at all with her. It, it seems like that he has maybe answered a few questions. He definitely read her pitch, but his involvement is basically nothing. So I worry that there's going to be another continuity or another canon there. So one of the things that we talk about, and we do talk about this in our last Stannis episode on the Patreon episode, is that essentially we have two versions of events going down for Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones, where we think that he's going to survive and win the Battle of Ice and win the Battle of Winterfell and take Winterfell and all those things. And Jon Snow takes part of his his plot from in season six and season seven. But in the show, Stannis, of course, dies at the end of season five. Could the same thing happen for the Age of Heroes series? Because the Age of Heroes is, it is somewhat fleshed out in the World of Ice and Fire, but it's not fleshed out anywhere near the level that we have for the Targaryen Kings, for instance. So is there a potential that they might start basically writing a separate set of canon from George R. R. Martin that perhaps some of the questions from the Age of Heroes might be answered in The Winds of Winter or A Dream of Spring, and those answers will differ from the successor show? I think that's a real possibility. And that is something that I've kind of, maybe sigh about, shrug my shoulders about, because that is all the time I feel like as book 
fans, primarily book fans and, and book show fans too, but show fans secondarily that were, I feel like I'm constantly answering questions and dealing with, well, we saw a version of what happens in the show. So of course that's what the Song of Ice and Fire is going to have. And the answer to that is maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes not. And I think that's something that I'm concerned a little bit about for the Age of Heroes, that we could have another set of canon developing where George has plans for another direction. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible. We'll have the same kind of, is this fitting this? Is this actually adapted from this? So the same kind of questions I'm sure will come up. I, I think, you know, I like I like a dose of ambiguity, though. Yes. So that's that'll be interesting enough. I don't necessarily want all the mysteries answered. And I do think it's going to be irresistible for them to lead into it somehow in season eight. I'm not sure how significantly it'll be, but especially regarding the others themselves, I'm sure there, there will be some breadcrumbs, maybe not explicitly, but some threads to pick up on for sure. They're going to want to, I mean, you know, this, this is the, the age of the cinematic universe and the, the, everything is a franchise now. So they, they're trying to do that with this particular story. So they have to start making their little connections. So we'll obviously not, we won't know it while we watch season eight because we won't have seen the prequel series yet. But I imagine there will be uh, connections made and then threads picked up on for sure. Absolutely. And I do think we want some mysteries answered. So I think that's pretty, we do, we do want to see that. And th- the final question that he has here is that, will there be any real shocking moments in Game of Thrones final season? Yes, that is actually confirmed that there will be at least one moment that that will be shocking. And we know this because David Benioff has said as much in interviews where there was three quote unquote, holy shit moments in Game of Thrones or in what George told them. Uh, a few years ago. The first one being that Stannis Baratheon burns Shireen. The second one being that Hodor means hold the door. And the third one is something that we're not going to see until the end game of Game of Thrones. And my take is that we're going to see the death of a major character. The first two holy shit moments have been the deaths of characters, Shireen and Hodor, with Hodor also having the exploration of his backstory. So I imagine that the third one is going to be the death of a major character, and my money is on Daenerys Targaryen. What about you? I agree. There, may, there might be multiple main characters who die, of course, but among the core cast, I think Danny seems the most likely to be killed off. And depending on the execution, that could be very shocking indeed. So I agree. Yeah, yeah. So definitely Danny would be my top pick. Arya is a second pick, and that's something we're actually going to be talking about here momentarily. So thank you guys for your questions, sir. And we also got one further question from Sir Joseph S., but we are going to reserve that question for next week. So thank you, Sir Joseph, for the question. And thank you, everyone else, for the question. But for now, this podcast is actually not a question and answer podcast. It is a chapter by chapter podcast. And the chapter we'll be reviewing this week is Game of Thrones, Aria 2. And here is its synopsis. Ned Stark's no good, very bad first day at the office has, if anything, gotten worse as time has progressed in King's Landing. It's plain enough that Arya Stark, second daughter of Lord Eddard, sees it when Ned enters the small hall, a dining facility that can seat 200 people, though only 50, that is all of Ned's retinue, are present, and Ned is pleased, if only because they've started eating without him. Jory Cassell, captain of Ned's guard, says there's talk of a great tourney of knights and lords coming to joust and feast in honor of Ned's appointment as Hand of the King. Ned ain't happy about that and states that the tourney is the last thing he would have wished. But Sansa's excited. A tourney? Will we be permitted to go, father? She asks. Hell no, Ned replies. But Sansa really wants to go to the tourney. And Septim Ordain presses Sansa's case to Ned. Lord Stark relents and says that he'll arrange places in the stands for both Sansa and Arya. But Arya, so far nearly invisible in her own chapter, finally pipes up. I don't care about their stupid tourney. Goddamn Joffrey will be there and she hates that little shit. 
Sansa does early Sansa Game of Thrones stuff and says that they'll be better off without Arya, which then leads Ned to doing early Ned stuff, telling Sansa and Arya to work together and remember that they're sisters and are to behave as such. The girls bite their lips and nod, but Arya is pretty upset. Ned's not happy either. He excuses himself from the table and leaves everyone to finish their meal without him. With Ned gone, the men talk of horses. Sansa and Jane Poole whisper amongst themselves, and others call for more wine. And Arya? Arya kind of fades into the background again, wishing she could eat alone. She misses the rest of her family back at Winterfell, where they'd all eaten together and fellowshipped as a family. She recalls that Ned used to leave an empty seat at the Stark table and called upon different members of the Stark retinue to come and eat with them. And Arya loved that time. She loved listening to the small folk speak, sharing their stories. She loved playing with the common people, helping them pilfer pies from the kitchen and playing with her children. She was Arya Underfoot then, but that was a world away. Here in King's Landing, Arya had grown to hate the voices of the men and women in service to Ned Stark. They were supposed to be her friends, but they let her down. They let the Hound murder Micah, her friend, who the Hound so brutally murdered that they returned his chopped up body in a bag to his father. No one had defended Micah. Not even her father. He was my friend, Arya whispers to her plate. Sullen and angry, Arya rises from the table and is challenged by Septa Mordain. She asks to be excused. Mordain refuses and says that Arya will need to clean her plate before she leaves. You clean it, Arya yells as she runs for the door. She rushes under Fat Tom, one of Ned's men's legs, and rushes into her bedchamber. She slams the door and drops the crossbar in its place, content that no one can enter the room. She wanders over to the winter cell and sobs. The deaths of Micah and Lady was all her fault. Sansa had told her as much. Jane Poole had as well. Jerk moves, Sansa and Jane. Fat Tom knocks on the door, asking if Arya is within. She yells, no, and Fat Tom walks away. He was always not the brightest bulb in the shed. When she hears his steps fading, Arya walks over to the chest and retrieves her sword needle from it. The thought of Micah returns and, her and tears fill her eyes. If she had only not asked him to play at swords, it was all her fault. Her fault. Her fault. And then Septim Mordain begins pounding at the door. Mordain yells for Arya to open up and Arya tells Mordain to eat shit. Mordain tells Arya that Ned will hear of her insolence and then Mordain leaves. With Mordain out gone, she returns to the window and looks out, wishing she could climb like Bran and how she would love to have climbed down from the tower and run away from this wretched place. That wretched place being King's Landing. From Septa Mordain and Prince Joffrey, she'd run back to the Trident and find Nymeria or run far away to the north and hang out with John at the wall. She wishes John were with her now. They were always close. Just then, a softer knock comes to the door. It's her father. He asks to be let in and Arya crosses the room to let him in, still holding Needle. When she opens the door, Ned notices Needle and demands the sword from her. She gives it up. Ned notices that it's a Bravo's blade and that it was made by in his own forge by his own blacksmith, Micken. My nine-year-old daughter is being armed from my own forge and I know nothing of it. The hand of the king is expected to rule the seven kingdoms, yet it seems I cannot even rule my own household, Ned complains. He asks where she got the sword. Arya refuses to snitch on John. Ned says ultimately it doesn't matter. But the sword isn't a toy for children, least of all a toy for a girl. And what if Septim Ordain knew that Arya was playing with swords? I wasn't playing. I hate Septim Ordain. Ned's lord's face appears and he instructs her that Mordain is doing nothing other than her duty. And Arya is making Septim Ordain's task of making Arya lady impossible. Ned, come on, man. That ain't right. Arya doesn't want to be a lady and Ned says he should snap the blade in half across his knee. Arya declares the needle won't break, but she knows it probably will. Ah, so the sword has a name, Ned says. Her father goes on to talk about how Arya has some wolf's blood in her, much like Lyanna had a touch and his brother Brandon had more than a touch. In the end, their wolf's blood had brought them an early grave. Yikes. Ned says that Arya reminds Ned of Lyanna sometimes, and Arya's taken aback. Lyanna is beautiful, and Arya doesn't believe that she is. She was beautiful, Ned says, beautiful and willful and dead before her time. He says this with a lot of sadness. And Arya, who were you planning to use this sword against? Mordain? Sansa? And what do you know of sword fighting anyways? 
Stick him with the pointy end, Arya blurts out. Ned laughs and says, yeah, that's pretty much the essence of it. And Arya then turns desperate and explains that she wants to learn and had asked Micah to practice with her. And then the tears return. It was my fault. It was me. No, sweet one, Ned says. Grieve for your friend, but never blame yourself. You do not kill the butcher's boy. That murder lies at the hound's door. Him and the cruel woman he serves. Arya hates them all. Hates that Joffrey lied and hates that Sansa lied by saying she didn't remember what happened. Ned replies that everyone lies and that he knows that Nymeria didn't just run off. Arya then reveals that her and Jory threw rocks to drive Nymeria away because they knew she'd be killed if she returned to camp. And Arya hit the direwolf with two rocks and she feels awful about it. It was right, Ned says. And even the lie was not without honor, Ned says gently. Arya picks Neil up again, walks to the window and looks out over the courtyard and then decides to explain things to Arya. You know our words, Arya. Winter is coming. The Starks had gotten a taste of that on the Trident, but winter is truly coming now. And what is the Stark sigil? The dire wolf, Arya replies. Let me tell you something about wolves, child, Ned says. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. You see, summer is the time for infighting, but we have to stick together now. Mordain is a good woman and Sansa is your sister. You may be as different as the sun and the moon, but the same blood flows through both your hearts. You need her as she needs you. And I need you both. God's help me, Ned finishes. Arya gives comfort to Ned next. I don't hate Sansa, she says. Not truly. And it was only half a lie. But Ned isn't comforted. They've come to a dark, dangerous place. And people here mean them harm. We can't fight amongst ourselves. We have to band together. And you, Arya, you have to grow up. I will, Arya vows, knowing that she had never loved Ned as much as she did in that moment. I can be strong, too. I can be as strong as Rob. Ned offers the sword back to Arya. Here. It's yours. Arya's kind of stunned. She can keep it? Yeah. Besides, Ned knows that he'd find a Morningstar hidden under her pillow if he took Needle away. But try not to stab Sansa, Arya, whatever she does. Arya promises that she won't. The next morning, Arya apologizes to Septa Mordane, and the Septa reluctantly accepts the apology. Three days later, Van Poole, Ned Stewart, sends Arya to the small hall, and there in the hall she encounters an unfamiliar voice. You are late, boy. Tomorrow you will be here at midday. It's motherfucking Cyril Pharrell, and he's come to train Arya and chew bubblegum, but he's all out of, uh, where was it? Ah, yeah. Uh, Cyril introduces himself as Arya's dancing master. He tosses her a wooden sword. She fails to catch it, but tomorrow, by God, you will catch that shit. She picks up the wooden sword, and damn, that shit is heavy. It's as heavy as it needs to be to make you strong and for balancing, Cyril explains. Arya holds the sword with her left hand, and this pleases Cyril, but that damn thing is still heavy. What if she drops it? The steel must be part of your arm. Can you drop your arm? No. And then Ciro explains that he was the first Sword of Bravos for nine years, serving under the Sea Lord of Bravos, and that he knows his shit, and boy, you best get to listening and training. I'm a girl, Arya objects. That shit don't matter, Arya. Boy, girl, you're a sword. Damn, I love Ciro. And you get th and get that grip right, Arya. You ain't holding a battle axe. No, not a battle axe, Arya replies. A needle. Just so. And then they dance the dance, as Arya tries again and again to strike Ciro, but Ciro dodges her every attempt all afternoon until every muscle in Arya's body is aching. The next day, Arya Stark discovers the mantra of the U.S. Navy SEALs. The only easy day was yesterday. And the real work with Cyril Pharrell begins. And that is the Game of Thrones Arya 2. Simply put, an outstanding chapter, striking masterful emotional beats and concluding with her introduction to one of my favorite King's Landing characters, Cyril Pharrell. I guess it really didn't need to be said. I kind of put it all in my summary there, but yeah. You kind of gave yourself away. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent work as always, Thank sir. You. Now, if I recall correctly, Aria 1 remains our shortest episode to date, as we really didn't have much to say about it. Yes. It was more just establishing the character than really doing anything with her. But that sure isn't the case here. Oh, no. 
That first chapter in Winterfell did establish Arya feeling like an outsider and bonding with Jon on that basis, but Arya too checks in after Needle and Micah, and so this is the true introduction to the tone and themes that will persist throughout her storyline. Specifically, the tone is one of loss and subsequent anger about it, and the theme is why does the world work this way? I mean, most POVs in A Song of Ice and Fire are arguably concerned with the scales falling from their eyes to a certain extent. But unlike Sansa, whose story focuses on her personal dilemmas and filters the politics through the lens of, well, stories, Arya's story is largely about the palpable feeling of injustice regarding the structures of society. And that remains true even when she leaves Westeros itself. Remember her great quote when the faceless, when the kindly man tells her the backstory of the faceless man and how they uh, were slaves in the 14 flames and someone had the idea of killing the slaves to kind of quote-unquote, free them from their bondage. And Arya said, that doesn't sound right. He should have killed the masters. <laughs> so even even when she leaves Westeros, her home continent behind, this is still kind of the major focus of Arya's arc, is, is injustice about how the world works. And that really starts here. Is I love that Arya is stricken not only with grief for Micah, but also rage at the people around her by whom she feels profoundly and personally betrayed. Yeah. Uh, quote, this was the first time they'd supped with the men since arriving in King's Landing. Arya hated it. She hated the sounds of their voices now, the way they laughed, the stories they told. They'd been her friends. She'd felt safe around them. But now she knew that was a lie. They let the queen kill Lady. That was horrible enough. But then the hound found Micah. <laughs> Jane Poole had told Arya they'd cut him up in so many pieces that they'd given him back to the butcher in a bag. And first the poor men thought it was a pig they'd slaughtered. And no one had raised a voice or drawn a blade or anything. Not Harwin, who always talked so bold, or Alan, who was going to be a knight. Or Jory, who was captain of the guard? Not even her father. <laughs> if this is what the Game of Thrones looks like, Arya's arguing, then it, it's not worth playing even with good intentions. Anyone who takes part in this is implicated. And she's specifically calling out bold talk and the desire to be a knight and the authority figures in her life, Jory and Ned, and saying, what worth is all of that? What worth is, you know, your impressive self-image or your, your status or your authority? What worth is all that when a man is handed pieces of his child in a bag and everyone just moves on? Yeah. What worth is any of this? She's, she's critiquing the entire pyramid from below, basically. Yeah, you're right about that. And it's also, it, we, we had talked about it in that Eddard 3 Sansa 1 episode about how events from the, those two chapters are implicit critiques of the feudal structure in Westeros that Micah can be killed with no ramifications. But really, George R. Martin gets explicit here and hammers home the point that no one did anything because they can't. They can't lift a blade to the Hound. They can't lift a blade to Joffrey. They have to acquiesce to those who are in a higher station of them in the feudal structure. And that's, again, something that we're going to see throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. And I like how Martin makes it explicit here. It's almost like that one, two, three reveal thing that his editor once talked about, how there's a a subtle clue, more explicit clue, and then he finally hits it over the head here. We get the idea that the feudal structure is off early in the chapters in the Game of Thrones. We get more explicitly with the death of Lady and with uh, with the men not doing anything about it. And then here we have Arya explicitly saying, this was wrong. No one did. Harwin didn't do anything. Alan didn't do anything. Jory didn't even do anything. Even Lord Eddard Stark, the Lord of Winterfell, the Warden of the North, the Lord Paramount of the North, they all stood aside and let injustice happen. And I think that's really good. And I think it really gets down to what is going to be animating Arya. And that is, like you said, that the Game of Thrones isn't worth playing. Now, Sansa takes an opposite of view, an opposite approach, and that even though she experiences a lot of these horrors in A Game of Thrones and into A Clash of Kings and, and A Storm of Swords, she does 
keep playing the Game of Thrones, but she learns how to play the game. Arya's basic instinct is, fuck the Game of Thrones. This isn't worth playing if people are, if innocent people are going to die. And by and large, she leaves the Game of Thrones aside and focuses on her training as a, as a bravo and goes through and sees the effect of the Game of Thrones on the small folk, especially in A Clash of Kings, as we're going to find out. Yeah, it's interesting that Martin starts Arya's relationship to these themes with a very kind of intimate individual events, the, the death of one person, Micah, her friend. Yeah. And when you get into the later books, though, it starts to go widescreen and Martin starts to show Arya and us how this works on a massive scale all across Westeros. She, as you say, he she bears witness to the rape of the Riverlands and the Clash of Kings. And then she sees the, the Brotherhood's campaign in response from the Storm of Swords. And uh, she's brought up consistently against the idea that the Game of Thrones is kind of meaningless and just hurts the small folk. And yeah. the, the, that the Brotherhood are fighting all sides. There's that great moment in Storm of Swords when they visit the village that was destroyed by her grandfather, Hoster Tilly, mm-hmm. which kind of is, is there from Martin to suggest that, hey, is, is as bad as the Lannisters are, don't start thinking that the Tullys and the Starks are angels by comparison, right. that we like them better. Yeah. They're better individuals to us, but they are still implicated and act within the same system that Arya is pointing out is hideous folly. And I think that's important to emphasize that, like, it doesn't, Arya is pointing out, it doesn't matter. If you're a nice individual, it doesn't matter if you're Harwin, her friend. It doesn't matter if you're Jory Cassell, the honorable captain of the guard. If you take part in this system, it's going to ask horrendous things of you. Yeah. And yeah, I agree. That's It's a contrast with Sansa. Uh, she, I think the, their signs are stronger for kind of working within the system. There's that uh, line from the Blackwater, uh, if I am ever queen, I'll make them love me, which is in direct contrast to Arya, who would really doesn't want any part of the crown yeah. and just wants to go home to go home. Sansa's character is more in the direction of attempting to change from the inside and I, th- I think it's i think it's important to get both both of those viewpoints because i think they both have contribute something valuable to the story what's interesting to consider and i hadn't really thought about before rereading this chapter is that the character all this puts Arya most in line with the idea that the, the entire system is is bs that it's all just violence and that none of it means anything and you, you should give up your dreams and give up on trusting authority figures the character that most puts her in line with is the man who killed Micah, Sandra Clegane. Yes. That's exactly how he talks. We're going to get much more into that when we get to Sansa 2 and the hands turning. Obviously, he's going to be talking to Sansa like that throughout a Clash of Kings. And then he starts talking to Arya like that, too, in A Storm of Swords when he uh, meets up with her. Me- meets up is the politest way to put that, I guess. They, they met at a party, Arya and <laughs> Yeah, him. right. But he, too, saw in his childhood trauma, uh, obviously it was committed to him, Arya saw it committed to a friend, but Sandor saw in his childhood trauma the revelation that it's the world that's awful, to quote him from Clash of Kings, not just individuals. And in response, he adopted the face of the Hound, that classic, you know, I will be the monster they, they think I am. If the world is monstrous, then I have to be monstrous to, to survive. Yeah. And uh, Arya's story increasingly becomes about whether she's going to go down that path, what face she's going to wear, which becomes quite literal when she gets to Bravos. Yeah. And of course, the face presented in chapter in opposition to that of the Hound and Cersei is that of her father. Yeah, you write about that. It's interesting how the Hound is framed as a villain rightfully so, early on in A Game of Thrones. But as the the stories of the sister of the Stark sisters advance, how he becomes something of a counterweight to their perspectives for Sansa in A Clash of Kings, where he's constantly, and early in A Game of Thrones as well, as we're going to find on the next Sansa chapter, where he's constantly referencing how the world of knights is actually not a romantic, beautiful thing, but is a bit horrible in reference to what Gregor did to him and what Gregor did to the children of Rhaegar Targaryen at the end of Robert's Rebellion. Arya's going to find that out as well. Now, the thing about Sander is that you draw a really great 
clear comparison between the two. Arya hates the shit out of Sander right now at this juncture in A Game of Thrones because he killed her friend Micah. And that's of interest in that when Arya has the opportunity at the end of A Storm of Swords to return the favor and to give Sander the gift of mercy, as we're going to find that she comes to regard as somewhat the gift of mercy in A Feast for Crows and Into the Winds of Winter, that, he, that she doesn't. That I don't know that she forgives him necessarily, but she comes to pity him in, in a sense, I think, at the end of A Storm of Swords. It's complicated. On the one hand, she says to Sander, you don't deserve mercy when she's walking away from him at the end there in Arya 13 yeah. in Storm of Swords. On the other hand, by the time she's gotten to that point, she has started leaving him off her list, her list of, of names, yeah. her list of people she wants to kill, which is a very significant omission. I, I get the sense that it's not that she doesn't hate him anymore. It's that now she understands him. Yeah. Like before he was just this monster, like this wraith with this horrible face and an even more horrible mask. And now he's a person. And now she kind of gets it and sees the similarities between them. I mean, there's that great line, uh, do you remember where the heart is from Sandor? Yeah. And of course, what he's literally talking about with Ari is, you know, you remember where the heart is so you can kill me yeah. and, 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 and my suffering. But metaphorically, he's asking her, do you remember where... Your soul is, your heart, your, your being, your identity, your love. Do you remember where that is? Yeah. And at that point, she kind of doesn't because it's right after the Red Wedding. She says there's a hole where her heart used to be. And it's the same is true of Sandor. He gets the he's the feeling that the heart has been burned out of him. And that's not entirely true. As, as we see, there's there's still a, a flicker of humanity left in him that he can kindle and regrow. But he's he's just been brought so low by what happened to him as a kid. And Arya is in, in danger of going down that road as well. Not to blame Arya for being furious at the world. I think her systemic critique here is absolutely correct. But it's a question of whether she intends to join the monsters or stand up to them. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I lean towards and hope stand up to them, but... <laughs> I mean, there's the, the point, as we see in uh, her time in Bravos, is to not be sure and to have Arya kind of teetering on, on a knife's edge yeah. between justifiable anger at the world uh, versus unjustifiable violence against the world. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. And I think that motif is going to be clear and apparent in throughout Arya's arc. One of the interesting things, though, I want to go back to something you talked about before, is that Arya is at this juncture... The only character who has a clear vision that she does not want to be in King's Landing. Now, Ned makes references like, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I made a mistake. I should be back in Winterfell with Bran and my wife. But he's never like, I'm going to take a horse and try and get out of here. Whereas Arya in this chapter says, I wish I was like Bran. I could climb down the, the windowsill and climb down the wall and get the fuck out of King's Landing because I hate this place. This place is awful. I want to be back in Winterfell and back with John and hanging out with Rob and seeing Bran. And that's an interesting theme in a lot of these Stark characters in A Game of Thrones and beyond is that they're always looking to be in the place that they're not right now. For instance, in that the last Tyrion chapter we reviewed, Tyrion says, suggests taking Jon down to Winterfell, and of course, when we get up to Jon up on the wall, he seems to be thinking about his family a lot there, but he's not at the point where he's taking a midnight ride to get to Rob after the death of Ned Stark and join his campaign in the Riverlands. Arya is kind of, her, her foresight here is a bit more advanced than any of the other characters. You know, Arya gets, gets out of Dodge at the end of A Game of Thrones, along with Yorin and the other, and the other, and the other Night's Watch recruits. Sansa gets the opportunity and the chance to leave King's Landing at the end of A Clash of Kings in the Blackwater with Sander Clegane, but she refuses that opportunity then. But she does get out at the end of A Storm of Swords. 
But Arya seems to be, her thinking is much more advanced at this point. I think that's intentional Martin's part because he is hinting towards Arya's eventual departure from King's Landing by setting the foundation for her wanting to get out of King's Landing very early in her arc so that when she does depart after Arya 5 from Game of Thrones and after witnessing the execution of Ned Stark, it makes sense. Whereas Sansa has to have further plot and for and further character development before she can get out of King's Landing and get north to the Vale and eventually, hopefully, in the Winds of Winter, get up to Winterfell too. Yeah, Arya, she sees through it quicker than Sansa. I'm not saying that, you know, she's necessarily smarter about it. I mean, she's just kind of put in that position more so than Sansa is, and Sansa has been kind of raised with more adoration and less critique of the world around her than Arya. Arya's already felt left out at Winterfell, so I think that necessarily primes her to see through these systems easier than Sansa does. But I agree, I mean, they have different relationships to it. Arya is, again, at the bottom of the pyramid, and that becomes even more the case in Clash and Storm when she's just wandering around the Riverlands, uh, this, you know, kind of war-torn hellscape. Whereas Sansa's at the top of the pyramid, but that doesn't necessarily mean she's enjoying herself in Clash and Storm because she's a prisoner and she's regularly beaten, and she has to kind of watch every word she says. So they're... They're very different, but they both both storylines form a coherent critique of the system. They just do it in, uh, with very different tones and very different ideas. But yeah, as Ned says, you know, you may be different as the sun and the moon, but you're still part of the same pack. And I think you can see that yes. in the way that their stories are kind of about the same things and even feature a lot of the same characters like Sandor. But uh, they just they, they do it in very different ways. Um, speaking of Ned, of course, as much as this is an Arya POV chapter... It, it feels almost like a Ned chapter, yeah. not that it's from his point of view, but that so much of it is about him and his worldview and, and what he does. And he's supposed to be standing in, in contrast to uh, the whole Lannister crew that, that uh, first cut and then killed Micah. Right. There's the the great, great part in this chapter I love so much when Arya is talking about how they would they used to always eat with the, with the men in Winterfell. Or, quote, they'd eaten in the Great Hall almost half the time. Her father used to say that a lord needed to eat with his men if he hoped to keep them. Know the men who follow you, she heard him tell Rob once, and let them know you. Don't ask your man to die for a stranger. <laughs> at Winterfell, he always had an extra seat set at his own table, and every day a different man would be asked to join him. One night it would be Van Poole, and the talk would be coppers and bread stores and servants. The next time it would be Micken, and her father would listen to him go on about armor and swords <laughs> and how hot a forge should be and the best way to temper steel. Another day it might be Holland with his endless horse talk, or Septon Chael from the library, or Jory, or Sir Roderick, or even Old Nan with her stories. I, I love that so much for oh, a yeah. lot of reasons. First of all, obviously, it's the class dynamic that we were talking about a little earlier. Gotta love that Ned is not Tywin. Tywin has that line about, you know, you feed your dog's bones under the table. You don't seat them beside you on the high bench. Yeah, fuck that guy. And Ned is explicitly the counter to that. He brings his his servants and his soldiers and his men to sit on the high bench with him. And it's not just like tokenism because he's including everybody. Yeah. And he, he's, he's talking with all of them. And not even he's talking. He's letting them talk. I like how it's written where it's not Ned telling the servants about like, what they're going to need to do over the next week or what they're going to need to do over the next season. It's him listening to them. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, Micken going on about armor and swords. It's holding with his endless horse talk. It's old man with her stories. It's not even like presented as fun to listen to, but it, right. it, it comes off like Ned thinks that this is my duty. I don't ask your man to die for a stranger. They have to know me. They have to care about me and I have to care about them and we have to relate to each other as people. That's that's wonderful, and that's very moving. And, of course, that doesn't change the fact that this is a feudal structure and this power structure shouldn't exist. Yeah. But it's a, a clear way to emphasize that not all of these individuals are monsters. And, and that some people are doing doing it much better than others and actually care about the people around them. And that this has had an impact on his children, as 
Ned was telling Rob about this and saying, this is the strategy you need to employ. And that Arya herself always, always loved this. She loved playing with their kids, naming their kids, stealing their, like, there's the great images of her running around. She used to throw snowballs at them and help them steal pies from the kitchen. Their wives gave her scones and she invented names for their mm-hmm. babies and played monsters and maidens and hide the treasure and come into my castle with their children. Fat Tom used to call her Arya Underfoot because he said that was where she always was. So she's learned this lesson wonderfully from Ned, yeah. that the small folk are people too. And that if, if you intend to not be a monster like Joffrey or Cersei, you have to recognize that. Yeah. And you have to interact with them and you have to care about them. And of course, the flip side to that is Arya was following that logic when she was hanging out with Micah. But then she, that logic and that ideal was was torn away brutally. Yeah. And so now she's starting to wonder if it meant anything. Again, it's not even her father stood up for Micah. So you can see her wondering to herself, okay, what well, what did that mean then? Right. Dad, all that stuff about you got to know your man and you got to listen to everybody. What did that mean if, if Micah, a person like those peasants you say we should be listening to, was killed and you didn't do anything about it? Were you lying to me? Yeah. And again, it's that sense of betrayal and that, that it resonates so strongly because of how powerful the image of Ned is. The fact that Ned was, was doing so well makes it stand out all the stronger that he has failed in this regard. Yeah. You, you know, it also what it does, too, is it not only puts that perspective in focus and that Ned is held up to a, a bit of examination for for the reader where I think you're absolutely right in that we take what Ned says to Rob and that know the men that you're serving and don't have someone, don't have a stranger die for you is great advice. But at the same time, the small folk, when, when it, one small folk person, that is Micah, is threatened and then killed by the Lannisters, Ned doesn't do anything. And I think as great as Ned is as a person and as a moral human being, I think he's probably close, if not the moral heart of a Game of Thrones. He has some he has some downfalls and some downsides too. And one of those downfalls and downsides is that he exists in the feudal structure and he's not challenging it. And for good reason too, because he's the Lord of Winterfell. You don't challenge a structure that you're benefiting significantly from as the Lord of Winterfell. Exactly. At the same time though, what I think is really interesting about Ned's words and Arya's memory of hanging out with the small folk in Winterfell is that it beautifully sets her up for her clash and storm arcs where she is actually interacting with the small folk there. Of course, you have noble characters like Thoros Amir and Beric Dondarrion and a few other ones like um, Lady, Lady, Lady Smallwood. Smallwood. Yeah. There's a couple. Yeah. But by and large, she's hanging out with people like Gendry, people like I'm just I'm just yeah. dumpling. Yeah. You got hot pie. Hot pie. You got Lamy. Lamy. You got on the flip side you got Rorge and Biter. Rorge and Biter. So uh, she, they're, not, they're not all they're not all angels, but yeah, she's actually she's she's down with them. Yeah, she's she's running the gamut of of hanging out with all of these folks from a completely different class structure that she is used to. And Ned's invitation to all the small folk to come and hang out at his table and his allowance of Arya to interact with the small folk that come to Winterfell gives her a great basis on which to act and operate with the small folk in her clash and storm arcs. So I, I, I feel like that's one of those things that George in writing a game of Thrones may not have envisioned that Arya would have this extended Riverlands journey, because again, when George first envisioned this, this was going to be three books with the first book ending with the red wedding. Crazy as that sounds. I say that every single time. I don't care. It is crazy that the first book would end with the Red Wedding. But you can see where George's Gardner style takes hold here and that he uses 
the foundation that he is building of Arya and the small folk to craft her clash and storm arcs and make them meaningful and impactful in, in ways that we're probably going to see further ramifications for in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring whenever Arya comes back to Westeros. Very true. And I, I love your point there about how, yeah, Ned doesn't criticize the feudal structure because the feudal structure has benefited him immensely. Yes. He's, he's at the top of it, especially as far as the North is concerned. And I think that's something that is important to keep in mind, both in reading stories about politics and in dealing with politics in real life, is that it's not so much like, you know, take racism in America to bring yes. it to a non-controversial <laughs> yeah, topic. let's do that one. <laughs> like, the problem isn't that, like, every white person in America is this demon who hates black people personally and wants to see them suffer. I mean, there are some white people like that. Sure. The problem is, is that the system, as it set, sets up, benefits white people in America. And for a lot of well-meaning, well-intentioned, nice white people, it's you're not going to tear down a system from which you benefit. Right. For better or worse, you are you, you kind of are passively implicated in it. I think you see the same thing here that, yeah, Ned's going to do as best he can within this system, but he's never going to tear it down right. because without this system, he's not Lord Edward Stark of Winterfell. And so that's that's the difficult position that Arya is in to, to really embrace the ideology she's kind of leaning towards here. You have to get rid of House Stark. You have to get rid of their their rule of the North, and, and that all has to go. And I, I think you can see not exactly a vision of what Martin wants to come next, but you can see why Martin thinks something needs to come next. You can see why he thinks this system needs to go, because the point is, the point isn't that, oh, the feudal system isn't so bad. Look at Ned Stark. Yeah. He's a nice guy. He's hanging out with the servants. The point is, even Ned Stark. Even that nice guy, even that humanitarian man, even he didn't say anything about Micah. Yes. So how how good can this system be when even a nice guy like him is in that position? I, I, that's what I think the, the, the critique Martin is making here. Yeah, that's I think that's wonderfully said. And I think that's exactly the point that Martin's going for in this chapter. But Ned Stark is, is great and all. And like you said, it's he can't do anything about when Micah dies because that's what the king... Didn't He didn't order it, but he allowed it to happen, and his passive allowance for Micah to die and not punishing his murder, his murderer, leads Ned to have to stand passively aside and let bad people and let bad things exist and to live on there. But even though Ned is a politician and has these significant political issues with the small council and with the king and with the queen and with that little shit Prince Joffrey, he's still a dad and he has to deal with the emotions of his daughters, and those emotions are running high here. Absolutely. And this, for me, as much as I uh, kind of critique Ned in terms of his role in the feudal structure, I think this is where you see Ned Stark shining forth as a father. As many people have pointed out, Ned does have some shortcomings as a dad, like that he never fostered any of these kids is kind of a problem. He doesn't seem to have prepared Arya for the world much before this, before this conversation. So I think you can fault him for that. But yeah, I really love how he, he talks to Arya here. It's this great mixture of, of comfort and hard truths. Yes. Like he, he hugs her and he holds her tight and he says he has it's the Robin Williams line from a Goodwill Hunting, <laughs> it's not your fault. Ah, He's telling her line. about about Micah's death. Yeah, and that's great. I love that he says, No, sweet one. You know, blame you blame the hound, you blame the cruel woman he serves, you don't blame yourself. Yeah. It was was not your fault that, that Micah died. Which is great. It's a direct counter to what Sansa and Jane were telling her that that it was her fault, but but it, it's definitely not. It's nice to have that, that moral clarity from the father figure. 
On the other hand, of course, he's he's telling her very directly, like, look, we're 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 in a dangerous place, and I'm I'm not going to pretend to you that everything is going to be okay. It reminds me of Incredibles two just came out, so it's putting in the mind of of the, the original Incredibles movie. And there's that my, maybe my favorite moment in that movie is when the mom, Elastigirl, and her her two kids are on this this remote tropical island trying to figure out some things, and she says, you know, the the people we're dealing with, they will not hold back because you're children. Yeah. They will kill you. Yeah. And that's it's it's a brutal moment, but it's something they need to hear, and it's just something that Arya needs to hear too. That she shouldn't blame herself, but she has reason to be afraid. Yeah. And that Ned is that is also afraid. But here's the issue with that: Arya is nine, eight, nine years old here mm-hmm. at this juncture in the chapter. If Ned knows they've come to a terrible, awful, horrible place, why doesn't he send her home at this juncture in the story? Why doesn't he find a ship, or why doesn't he figure out a way to get Arya back with Catelyn? Now, maybe you have to keep Sansa there to keep appearances up. But Ned's early purpose in A Game of Thrones is to find out who murdered John Aaron. That's the reason why he why he finally accepts the role of Hand of the King is that he wants to get down to King's Landing to find John Aaron's murder. But why does he not send Arya Stark back after the Trident, after he sees that this is a dangerous place and my girls are in significant, serious danger if they stay down here in King's Landing? I think as much as I love Ned as a father and I think that he gets he's one of the better fathers in the series, not the best. Uh, as we'll probably talk about it in a future Sansa Arya chapter. He's still letting his kids live in this dangerous place where they're going to be potentially killed or potentially injured or hurt. You know, at least in the example of Elastigirl, I think was it, and it's been a couple of years since I've seen The Incredibles, they sneak onto the the plane that Elastigirl is flying. Yeah. It's not that she takes good point. their That's kids true. with them to, to the tropical island. They're there <laughs> and she does not want them there and she tries to secure them. It just seems like almost an un unparent thing to do and, and maybe that's just me speaking because I've I've got two girls but I couldn't imagine having uh, having my girls in a place where people actively want to kill me and actively want to kill members of my family you know it just it just seems out of place I don't know what do you think that's true that's a very good point and a good contrast with the Incredibles there yeah uh, they, they, they snuck along Ned openly brought his kids and it's not you know it's not like he didn't realize King's Landing was going to be dangerous. Like he, you know, his father and his brother were murdered here, right. and you know he he knows that he, he knows that the the capital is a, a den of vipers. He doesn't want any part, and he said as much in Catalan too. I think there's a couple of things. One is as he says about Septimordain, she has the impossible task of making Arya into a lady, and Catalan had said in Catalan too that uh, Arya, I think it was Catalan too that Arya needed refinement. She said that in some chapters. Yes. Uh, so there is that sense that they think Arya needs like a, a, a dose of court life in order to, to make her into a, a proper feudal lady. Yeah. Which, of course, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you can see that idea being criticized in terms of what actually happens in yes. Landing to both Arya and, and Sansa. Sansa, the proper court lady who is beaten on the order of her betrothed in public. So I think you can see that while that's a justifiable instinct within this system, it turns out to be horribly wrong. Yes. And I think the other reason is, is more personal when Ned says that he needs both of them. I think Ned just doesn't want to be without his, any of his family. Yeah. He's already missing Catelyn and Rob and John. You know, not having the girls with him, I think, would would just break his heart, especially given that Arya looks like Lyanna and how much he misses Lyanna. Yeah. So I think that's also part of it, too. Emotionally, he can't bear to have them away. But isn't that a little Which selfish? It, I mean, yeah, that is that is selfish. And I think that's, I don't know, that's 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 a flip side to the parental love, right? Yeah. There isn't There is an aspect of selfishness to it. This is my child and I want them around. And you're like, you know, there is... Love can be selfish sometimes, and I think you can kind of see that with with Ned here, where it it, it blinds him a little bit to the 
personal safety of his children that that they're in danger and maybe he should be trying trying harder to, to send them out of danger yeah yeah i don't know it just kind of struck me when i was reading this chapter that that emotional notes are, are great and all and ned's words are absolutely true that they are in a dangerous place and people mean them harm well then the the action should and i and i, I say should but it has to happen in a story sense so i know that in, in this in this narrative, a lot of things that I criticize the, the characters for have to happen in the narrative in order for things to progress forward in, in the story where Martin wants to go. But perhaps in this this case, Ned should have sent them back home or should have sent them someplace besides King's Landing where everyone wants them. Not everyone, but a lot of people want them dead. But yeah, and you know, the thing too is that we've already seen as we've emphasized some length here in this this episode so far that it's a dangerous place and we've already seen people die that didn't deserve to die here and something and, and that character namely being Micah, who we've, we've talked about here in this episode and in previous episodes and kind of as a interesting catch from this chapter, there's something that I, I, I saw that I did not previously see. And it's interesting because in the chapter, we get these lavish descriptions of food, right? We get the description of the ribs that they're about to eat in King in the small hall in King's Landing as being cooked in a crust of herbs and garlic and stuff like that. And it sounds all tasty and Yum. yummy, yummy, yummy. Yeah. I, I like to make ribs. So I'm, I'm curious about what the, uh, the recipe might be. <laughs> I'll have to check my, uh, a feast of ice and fire book because that is a uh, great book and perhaps they have a recipe in there for them. Um, but there's something interesting about that description there because I think we see why Arya doesn't actually eat the ribs. So right before we get the description of the ribs, we get this thing where, quote, Jane Poole had told Arya that he'd cut him up, that is, Sandra Clegane had cut Micah up in so many pieces that they'd given Micah back to the butcher in a bag. And at first, the poor man had thought it was a pig they'd slaughter, a pig they'd slaughtered. And then just a few lines down, it's, quote, her ribs sat there untouched, grown cold now, a thin film of grease congealing beneath them on her plate. Arya looked at them and felt ill. Well, Arya's looking at those ribs and feeling ill because the plate is likely pork ribs. And her memory of Jane Poole telling her that Micah's dad thought the bag containing Micah was a pig that they'd slaughtered. It just, it's its horrifying. And this is, it, it's, it's horrifying, but it also makes total sense why Arya's not eating carrots. Both the trauma that she's experienced on the road down to King's Landing, as well as the memory of Micah and what Jane Poole had told her about how Micah's body had been returned to her father, that he was, that his father had thought that they had brought him a pig that they'd slaughtered for him to, to do his butcher's work on. And that's horrifying, but it gets at something that we're going to explore throughout A Song of Ice and Fire and that George gets, you know, mostly good natured ribbing for his lavish food descriptions. But those descriptions are in there for a purpose. And I think here that purpose is to make us feel very unsettled, uneasy, and kind of sick to our own stomach because Arya is drawing a, an explicit connection between Micah being thought of as a pig they'd slaughtered and looking at her ribs and feeling ill about them because she sees them and sees the death of her friend Micah. Yeah, that's a wonderful and grisly connection there, sir. That's exactly the kind of imagery Martin likes to play with. And yeah, I'm sure that's what she's thinking. She's staring at that plate and thinking, flashing back to Micah and imagining his body. And it's, it's a great way of emphasizing how events like that kind of run underneath your daily life. Yeah. And even when you're not actively thinking about them, they just kind of come up and, and flash into your mind. Just like how Ned uh, deals with Liana and her bed of blood that, you know, promise me Ned keeps entering his thoughts. And he has that, you know, intense 
fever dream flashback in his 10th chapter to the Tower of Joy. And now, like, Arya has her own version of that, her, her own trauma that's going to keep haunting her mind. Yeah, it's just such such a such a grisly description, yeah. and that, that's what really kind of hits it home for Arya. It's not just that he died, but just this the, the horrible, horrible way he died, and that she can't reconcile with living her life. She, there's, there's no closure, there's no catharsis here. It's just wretched, and that's that's what makes her so angry, and that's what makes her so angry at the the world for not for not doing anything about it, and what makes her angry at her father. But then, you know, by the end of her conversation with her father, she says she had never loved him so much yeah. as she did in that instant because he's being honest with her and he's he's telling her about the hardships and she's not he's not just putting a smiley face and everything. And that's what Arya really hates in this chapter is that everyone's pretending that everything's okay, everyone's just acting normal. Even though she, in her heart she's like, "How can you guys act like this is normal? This the slaughter of a child and being handed back to his father in a bag. How can you? Is this how the world works? Is this right. what you think is a proper system?" Yeah. And having Ned tell her no, well, it's not 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 good enough. It's not Ned actually taking on the system. At, at least he validates her feelings yeah. and tells her that she's she's right to grieve, she's right to feel sad, she's right to feel angry, and she's right to be afraid. But that if she lets that isolate her and if she lets that cut her off and alienate her from humanity she will be in more danger not less yeah because as he says you know the the the, when winter comes the pack survives the lone wolf dies but the pack survives which is interesting we can have a discussion as we go through the series about whether that's actually necessarily true (laughs) but it is it is it is emotionally true it is like you can't be squabbling amongst yourselves while real dangers exist. And the, the invocation of winter there makes this kind of a metaphor, well, not really a metaphor, but like a microcosm of the series as a whole, where you have people in Westeros fighting each other for some good reasons, some not, but they're you know, destroying each other and making themselves weaker, even as the others approach and winter comes. Yeah. So you see Ned kind of saying that here, where, you know, you and Sansa, you have differences, you have legit grievances with each other, but you are you are one blood. You are one pack. And when you work up against real enemies, you have to stick together. And that's uh, something that really, really kind of touches Arya. And she's very she loves him not just for saying that, but for making himself so intimate and vulnerable to her. Uh, really, really helps her kind of reconnect with her humanity. And I think you know if if he didn't have this, obviously, if he didn't have this conversation with her, she never would have uh, had her training with Sirio because. He, he only sent her the cereal because he <laughs> finds needle. But even emotionally speaking, if she had never had this conversation with him, she probably wouldn't have opened up to Syria as much as she does. Yeah. Because at, at the start of this conversation, she's, she hates everybody and hates everything and doesn't want to open up to everybody. And it's really important that she has this conversation with Ned. She would never be able to develop relationships with father figures again. And of course, a lot like John, she develops relationships with many father figures throughout the course of the series. Yeah, she absolutely does. And that relationship with Sirio is really interesting in that you have to ask yourself why she immediately gravitates towards Sirio Pharrell. And I think there's a there's a hint here that Martin embeds in it, and that what Sirio says when they meet up is that Arya is, is that what they're doing is the water dance. They're not doing this hacking and slashing that the knights do. This is the water dance, child, and describes it as a much more graceful, beautiful way that you would use a sword. And that instantly appeals to Arya. And I think it instantly appeals to Arya because she's seen what knights do. She's seen what that the knights stood aside and let Micah die. She's seen what, you know, Sandra Clegane is not a knight, but he does represent something of the feudal structure there and that hacking and slashing, again, cutting Micah up so much that he was returned in a bag in pieces that's the hacking and slashing that Arya might be connecting here in her own mind. And that does work to immediately ingratiate herself 
or it, it works to ingratiate Serio to Arya. And I think that that's, that's great. And I, I, again, like I said in the summary, I, I love Sir. I love his introduction here. I think it's just terrific. It's a great note to close on. It's almost like a soaring moment where you get these really tough emotional feelings that Arya's, these tough feelings that Arya's feeling about the death of Micah and why no one did anything. But then you get at the end of the chapter, you get that bit of release of that tension through Ciro Pharrell and through him instructing Arya on how to be a water dancer. And I think that's a motif that we're going to be exploring throughout Arya's chapters as Ciro Pharrell is going to play a major role, especially in Arya 3 and 4. Yeah, I think that's a great point about Arya immediately gravitating to Ciro because he represents a contrast to the, the knightly order of Westeros. And that, you know, you know, she brings up Alan, who was going to be a knight yeah. specifically, she says, and how he didn't do anything. So I think I think you're absolutely right that Sirio is meant as a contrast to that. I think Sirio is also meant as a contrast to Alistair Thorne, who we've seen in John 3 and Tyrion 3, as kind of being an incompetent mentor, not even trying to be a mentor, or a really bad teacher. Sirio yeah. uh, is, you know, also training a Starkling in sword, sword play, uh, but he's, he's doing a much more kind of emotionally effective job of it, a much more logistically effective job of it. And yeah, Sirio is, is wonderfully likable because he gets these, this great dialogue and the sense that, um, I don't know, the sense that he's almost talking to himself the way he talks to Arya, <laughs> like he doesn't really need her to say anything. He's just kind of, he's just kind of in, enjoying the wordplay and the rhetoric of it. And he feels very fantasy. You know, this, this, this quirky guy with his sword training this young girl how to fight. It's, it's, it's classic fantasy stuff. And I agree, it feels soaring because it comes in the context of a chapter that's trying to brutally deconstruct some of that stuff. Yes. So I think I think that's what makes it all the more emotionally effective is it's like this little oasis that Arya has, this kind of fragile hope that she can cling to. The other reason I think Sirio works really well for her is after you get this conversation with Ned where they explicitly address what's going on, where they talk about their emotions, where they talk about their fears, you, then you get Sirio who says, okay, but put all that aside. You just need to get exhausted every day. Yes. And this is something I think I've talked about before. That's, uh, sometimes you just, the way to deal with hardships in your life is you just need to work yourself until you pass out every night. Yes. And let your brain kind of slowly heal and just distract yourself, keep your body active, exercise. And I think that's something that Arya needs right now, too. She just needs something to do with her day besides sit there and be sad and hate everybody. She needs to get her blood pumping. She needs to, you know, connect. She needs to learn a skill. She needs to do something she can feel good about. So that when we next see, when we next see her, it's not like she's completely recovered, of course, because <laughs> that's not how it works. But, like, she's happily chasing cats around and, like, trying to stand on one toe. And Sirio says, every hurt is a lesson. And it's, you know, she's like, she has something to do now. She has something she's working on that she cares about, and that's something she really needs and something that Sirio provides. And uh, You know, you, you gotta love Ned Stark for, for finding Sirio and sending him to Arya. Yeah. Because even though he kind of regrets it later and says, should I find Sir Barristan or someone more traditional for you? <laughs> I like that his first instinct was to find someone who suits Arya and who suits Needle. Yes. Uh, you know, who fit the, the water dancing fits Arya's body and her sword perfectly, and you gotta love that. Uh, Ned specifically found someone for that. And it's a big moment for Ned because, of course, as we see in this chapter, he associates Lyanna's death with her wolf blood and her willfulness, uh, you know, beautiful and willful and dead before her time. And part of that, of course, is her her swordplay, as we see with uh, the Night of the Laughing Tree story when she hits a bunch of squires with a tourney sword and is almost certainly the Night of the Laughing Tree herself. Mm -hmm. As we see in Bran's, Bran looking through the Winterfell heart tree in A Dance with Dragons and seeing her practicing swordplay with uh, who was almost certainly young Benjen, and she even talks like Arya in that little scene, uh, be quiet, stupid, it's only water. <laughs> um, so, you know, Ned, so for Ned, Arya being this way terrifies him at some level because it's like Lyanna and he thinks it's going to lead to Arya dying before her time. 
But then he still is willing to help her and still is willing to get her trained and lets her keep needle. And that's just a great parenting moment that you can kind of step back and recognize, okay, I have these, I have these fears, but they're not entirely rational fears. Right. And that I have to be able to recognize that and let my child live their life and, and, and be happy. I mean, because, you know, what puts, ultimately what puts Arya in danger is not that she's uh, willful. It's that they're, as Ned says, in a dangerous place full of dangerous people. So Arya wanting to fight with a sword is, is not what's going to get her killed. Yeah. So I think Ned being able to recognize that and send Syria to his daughters is, is is kind of a sign of emotional progress on his part. Yeah. And that takes me kind of right into my like for this chapter and that it is a chapter that is dealing with trauma and overcoming trauma. You know, for, for Ned, the trauma is the death of Lyanna at an early age and the death of Brandon as well. But for this chapter, it's a realistic exploration of Arya's trauma and how it affects kids. It's heartbreaking and Martin strikes the correct emotional notes when Arya's internal monologue about it was my fault, it was my fault, it was my fault. And then he shows that trauma in action when she is acting out against Septimordain. Not that she hasn't acted out against Septimordain previously in Aria 1, where she runs away from the needlework there, but she's acting out as a result of the trauma that she experienced on the road to King's Landing. And then you have that same acting out too, when she's holding needle when Fat Tom, Septimordain, and then eventually her father come to her room. That's not normal behavior for a kid. It's admirable behavior as brought on by the trauma that she experienced and that holding her, that sword is a defense mechanism against a world where Arya feels that no one will protect her, that she has to protect herself. And Ned at some level recognizes that like you put so perfectly, as you always do, in allowing Arya to train with Cyril Farrell and to learn how to defend herself and learn how to use Needle, which proves to be extremely helpful for Arya as she escapes King's Landing and is escaping the horrors in the Riverlands as well. Yeah, that's a great point. I think this, this you could say this chapter is about trauma and how you deal with it. I'm, you know, directly through Arya's POV and then kind of implicitly about Ned. Yeah. Uh, dealing dealing with the death of Lyanna. And I think that's, yeah, there's some real, real profound stuff in there in terms of Ned kind of realizing that the next generation is going through the same, next generation of Starks is going through the same things. I think that's real interesting. My, my like for the chapter is a, a lot less deep. Uh, it's just that I, I really love this little moment with Fat Tom when she's, he's chasing Arya up to her room and she's, she locks herself in and then quote, Fat Tom was knocking on her door. Arya girl, what's wrong? He called out, you in there? No, she shouted. The knocking stopped. A moment later, she heard him going away. Fat Tom was always <laughs> That's just a delightful little thing of you can just imagine Fat Tom going, oh, she's not in there. Thanks, mysterious stranger. Doop, 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 doop. <laughs> it's just cute. And it's, it's a nice breaking of the tension in, in this chapter and what, what is otherwise a very heavy and dark chapter. Yeah. It's nice to get this, uh, get a little moment of levity, which is I think is important and it prevents Martin from going full grimdark. Yes. And it, it also adds to the kind of childhood feel of Arya's chapters. That's a very childish thing to like say, I'm not here and expect someone to believe you. Mm-hmm. And it works in this mm-hmm. case, but that's just, you can, you can you, little kids always, always do stuff like that. And, you know, of course, Fat Tom is the one who gave her the name Arya Underfoot. So there's this kind of connection to her past at Winterfell. And again, like the crossing of class lines and having a, a strong dynamic with the small folk. And of course it, Makes it all the more brutal when Fat Tom gets killed in the throne room Jeez, in yeah. yeah, it really does. In terms of my dislike for this chapter, you know, it's a really terrific chapter. Uh, like I said, I think it's a significant improvement on Arya 1. I would have liked to know exactly what Ned was arguing about with the small council. Yep. This chapter starts with uh, Arya saying that Ned had been fighting with the council again. Uh, we don't really get a sense of Ned's policies as hand all that much in the Game of Thrones. In between, we had the debate over the hands turning in Eddard 4, 
Um, and we will, of course, see the, the really great debate over uh, Daenerys' fate in Edward Eight. We see Ned on the Iron Throne dealing with Gregor in Edward Eleven. But yeah, there is this kind of in-between period where you get the sense they've been in King's Landing for a while, but you don't really know what Ned's fighting about or what the deal is. And that's something I would have liked to see more of. As I've said before, the part of Ned's story I find least interesting is his actual investigation yes. of what John Aaron was up to. And I, I, I wish we'd seen a, maybe a little less of that and a little more of him actually trying to be Hand of the King. Because uh, one reason, and we'll get into this when I get to Clash of Kings, that I overall prefer Tyrion's chapters in that book as the Hand, Ned's chapters as the Hand in this book, even though you don't get the kind of emotional, tragic connection to Tyrion as you do to Ned, one of the reasons I like it better is you get you spend so much time with Tyrion and like the mechanics of ruling, yeah, and just the logistics of going through the day and meeting with all these people and using them for what you need and keeping withholding this information here and giving it out there and there's that great one two three thing he does mm-hmm. with the the counselors. I mean, I, w- I would have liked a little more of that with Ned. I mean, maybe that's unrealistic because so much of the point of Ned's story is that he doesn't really understand his job or how to do it effectively. So maybe that's deliberate on Martin's part. But yeah, it's, it's kind of frustrating to reread this and like uh, Ned had been fighting with the council again. I'm like, about what? What's the deal? Yeah. What's the thing? I mean, I, so that's uh, I would have liked a little more of that. I totally agree that we should have had some Ned chapter or maybe Arya walking into the small council or overhearing what's going on and that giving us an idea of what Ned is fighting with the small council about. I guess the implication from the early part of this chapter is that the fight is over the hand's tourney. That is a progression from Eddard Four, but that's not explicitly said. And I think it's important to kind of have that context in mind. Now, it's not a, a showstopper by any stretch of the imagination. It, it still works, but I agree that we should have had a chapter or something where we get the idea of what Ned and the Small Council are actually fighting about instead of trying to guess that it's about the hand's tourney or about something else. And kind of in addition to that, to I think there's a missing Sansa chapter here. Jeff wants another Sansa chapter? I know, right? Jeez. I'm, I'm, Stop the presses, folks. Like I said at some point on social media this week, the mask is falling. Yeah, you heard <laughs> me right, man. Like, um, George should have had a Sansa chapter here before this Arya chapter exploring Sansa's psychology post-Trident. And and why? why? Why do we need a Sansa chapter? Well, in this chapter, Sansa seems... Fine, like that she's no worse for the wear. It almost is like a pickup from Aria 1 where Sansa is just doing Sansa things there, doing needlework and hanging out with Jane Poole. But Ned's prior two chapters have Sansa extraordinarily and completely reasonably upset over Lady and the death of Lady to the point where Ned says in Ned 4 that she was crying herself to sleep every night. Yet here in this Arya chapter, Sansa's, like I said, returned to her previous state of being a bit of a snot to Arya, gossiping with Jane Poole and doing just general Sansa things. So what changed for Sansa between Eddard 4 and Arya 2? And, that, and that's something I would have preferred to explore in at some level. So maybe having a Sansa chapter here instead of having Sansa 2 pick up where she's at the turning of the hand. I probably would have preferred that, I think, ultimately. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. There's something missing here. And that gets at what I mentioned a little bit earlier. It's not clear exactly how much time has passed. You get the sense they've been in King's Landing for a while. But yeah, by the time you get to Sansa 2, it's more or less like Lady never really happened. Yeah. It's, it's not really brought up. And that also gets at something I've mentioned before, which is that it's kind of weird that Sansa still is all in on Cersei at this point. Yes. As, as, as a wonderful person, as her role model, as a great queen, after she was right there in the room when Cersei ordered Lady Kill. Yes. And she knows it was like, it's not even like Sansa heard about that scene and assumed it wasn't Cersei or said, no, 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 that can't be true. Yeah. I know Cersei, she's the queen. She saw it happen. So and it's, it's, it's a little weird that even someone as 
kind of lost in the lights as Sansa would not realize at some level that Cersei's a bad person after that. And, you know, a another Sansa chapter might have allowed Martin to process that. Maybe you show a scene with Sansa and Cersei. Maybe they go to tea and Cersei kind of, like, sways her back to her side or, you know, something. Yeah. Something would have helped, I think, link up the psychology a bit there. And much as I overall really like Sansa's chapters in Game of Thrones, you know, part of the problem is she just... She was the by far the last person to get a POV chapter. Mm-hmm. She's the last person to get a second one, last person to get a third one. So you're kind of constantly playing catch up with her. And I think you can see the consequences of that here. Yeah, yeah. agreed. It's kind of like, you know, in this chapter, it's very much a continuation of what happened to Lady in the Death of Micah for Arya, where Arya is processing all the things that happened to her. And then by the end of the chapter, yeah, exactly. you allow her to move on to... The training phase where she's training how to be a water dancer and that works because it works because we've had the ability to work on Arya and explore what she's dealing with emotionally before we get her training. And I think that's something that Martin might have dropped the ball a little bit on here and that we should have had a Sansa chapter exploring what Sansa is thinking and what Sansa is is doing to overcome the death of Lady, which is a very difficult thing that Sansa experiences in Ned's third chapter. Jeff wants more Sansa chapters. He heard it here first, folks. (laughs) Absolutely. Shockingly enough. So, moving on into the uh, foreshadowing and groundwork laid down in this chapter. Uh, The big one, which we kind of already touched on, deals with the Arya-Lyanna connection. We we talked at some length uh, in Arya's first chapter about the potential foreshadowing of finding Arya dead with Needle still frozen in her hand, but here we get some more potential foreshadowing of Arya dying. Uh, with Ned telling Arya, uh, you have a wildness in you, child. The wolf blood, my father used to call it. Lyanna had a touch of it, my brother Brandon, more than a touch. It brought them both to an early grave. Arya heard sadness in his voice. He did not often speak of his father, or of the brother and sister who had died before she was born. Lyanna might have carried a sword if my lord father had allowed it. You remind me of her sometimes. You even look like her. <laughs> so we see Ned drawing a connection between Arya and Lyanna. The wolf blood they share, Lyanna's early grave... So this might also be signals from the author that Arya might suffer the same uh, fate Lyanna did, which is namely a, a death at a young age. Beautiful and willful and dead before her time, as Ned says. Yeah, it's a continuation from that first Arya chapter where John tells Arya that they'll find Arya dead, frozen with a needle frozen to her hand. Is Martin signaling that Arya is going to die here, that she's going to have the same fate as Lyanna Stark? It's an open question. I think that we, it's in my mind, it's still up in the air whether Arya ultimately survives. I think I'd like Arya to survive, but we just don't know. And we can be pretty sure that Arya is going to come back to Westeros, and coming back and come back to Westeros right when the others are coming to Westeros. And that's doesn't look good for Arya necessarily, but perhaps in season eight of Game of Thrones, we'll get a version of what's going to happen and get some hinting what will happen in the books as well. On a little bit of a smaller note, a little bit less heavy, there's a bit of trivia here in that Maisie Williams, who plays Arya Stark in Game of Thrones, apparently her mother had read the books uh, because she was at the at that stage when she was filming season one. She was eight or nine years old. She was the same age as Arya. So her mother was reading a Game of Thrones because it is a very adult book, and I approve as a, as a parent. And um, in 2012, she was interviewed, Maisie Williams was interviewed by TV Guide, and she told them that, quote, I'm right-handed, and when mom was reading the first book, she told me about Arya being left-handed. From then on, I was like, all right, I'm going to try to do everything left-handed. When I was practicing out in the garden and things I would do left-handed just to feel that rhythm. And in this chapter, we get the line where Arya is holding the wooden sword that Surya tosses to her with her left hand, and it says, quote, Arya took her left hand off the grip and wiped her sweaty palm on her pants. She held the sword in her left hand. 
he seemed to approve. The left is good. All is reversed. It will make your enemies more awkward. And you know what's uh, kind of fun about that, too, is that in Season 7, we get that really cool scene between Arya and Brienne of Tarth, where they have that little fight out in the Winterfell courtyard. And Arya does that whole scene left-handed. All that choreography that went into that is spectacular and wonderful. And she does it even though that she's right-handed. So she's using her offhand to do that fight choreography and that fight scene. So we have a great little scene there. And that is something that um, our friend Joanna Robinson of Vanity Fair had pointed out in a great article that we'll link in the show notes. Yeah, it's it's a great little touch. I've always really loved Maisie Williams and, and her performance. And it's, what seemed like a real devotion to the physicality of Arya's character and her as a sword fighter and specifically as a water dancer. And I love that scene with Brienne. But obviously, being left-handed is, is much less common than being right-handed. So it could easily be like Arya feeling like an outsider. But then once again, Serio kind of affirms her and says, no, that's good. The left is good. All is reversed. It'll make your enemies more awkward. <laughs> so her, her skinniness, her left-handedness, the things that could stand in for her feeling like an outsider. Sirio is recasting those as good things, as positive things, as things you can take advantage of. Yes. And that's wonderful. That's the, that's the kind of thing you need from, from a teacher and from adults in general at that age. You need someone to tell you, hey, those things that are different about you that make you unique, they're not, they're not bad things. They can be really good things and things that can be unexpected for your enemies and things you can take advantage of. I love that uh, Sirio tells, tells her that. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, as recently as I believe a day or two ago from when we're recording this, Maisie Williams was interviewed for, um, I can't remember where she was interviewed, but she is recommending for books for people to read that they should read A Game of Thrones and that she is reading the books now. So that's cool. I think that's really cool now that uh, Maisie Williams is now an, an adult. I believe that she's over the age of 18. She's reading A Game of Thrones and is recommending it for folks to read. So Appreciate Maisie's mom reading the books to her or interpreting the books for her, rather. And then for uh, Maisie then reading the books afterwards, I think it's really cool that to have the uh, the actors reading um, the source material that their their role is based on. Absolutely. I look forward to lots of good A Song of Ice and Fire meta from Maisie's mom. <laughs> That's going to be great. A couple other uh, like smaller kind of foreshadowing notes uh, when Arya is talking, as you mentioned, about escaping the Red Keep. She says, quote, steal some food from the kitchens, take Needle in her good boots and a warm cloak. And uh, she basically does that when she escapes Harrenhal at the end of the next book, Clash of Kings. Uh, she makes sure she gets some food from the kitchens thanks to Hot Pie. She uh, doesn't have Needle at that point, but she makes sure to, to, to take a blade and uh, use it against the guard on the way out. And, of course, she makes sure to take a bunch of clothes, so the, the this, this escape does happen, but it's not from King's Landing. Who knows if that, you know... That's obviously, it's a very kind of generic description. It, it could be no connection at all on Martin's part. It just, it just stood out to me. What I think is almost certainly a, a deliberate and explicit connection is when Arya says, quote, I hate them. The Hound and the Queen and the King and Prince Joffrey, I hate all of them. So this is the birth of her list right there. It's, it's, she, doesn't know, she hasn't explicitly set it up yet, but I think that's Martin laying the groundwork for this, this list of names of people she wants dead that she's going to keep coming back into in her mind over and over over the next few books. Even just the the pacing of it, the Hound and the Queen and the King and Prince Joffrey, she's going to be going over this in her mind, including several of those people, not Robert, obviously, because he's dead by the time she gets the list going. But the other three are all, you know, first and foremost on that list. So I think in a chapter that's dealing with Arya's kind of trauma and grief and anger, you can see Martin hinting at one of the ways it's going to come out later on, which is her 
a list of names to kill. Yes, and it is a list that grows because it includes yep. Ellen Payne later on, um, and I believe Gregor as well, or is that TV show? I can't remember. I think Gregor's on it. Uh, yeah, Gregor's on her list. Gregor and all, all his all his men. Yeah, Gregor, the Tickler. Dunson and Raph. Yeah, and Raph Oliver. the Sweetling. Yeah, the Tickler, all those guys. Yep. And uh, one of the things that Emmett had mentioned earlier is that one of the names gets removed at the very end of A Storm of Swords, and that is the Hound's name stops appearing on her list. And she doesn't know why, but she's she's content with not wanting to take the Hound's life, and she doesn't ultimately, and we see the Hound again in A Feast for Crows. Yeah, and Ellen Payne is also on that list, which I, I think is interesting, and I wonder if that's going to pay off in any way or if she's going to take that off, because uh, Ellen Payne creeps everybody out, but it's hard to hold him responsible for Ned's death. So, I mean, it's hard to hold him at least primarily responsible for Ned's death. So I wonder I wonder if that's going to pay off or if Arya's going to remove him from the list too. But, but we shall see. Ellen Payne is, is in the Riverlands and Arya's probably heading back there at some point to get her wolf. So we'll see. There's that great theory by Adam Fellman that the prologue character for The Winds of Winter is going to be Ellen Payne and that the chapter will conclude with the wolves attacking both the Brotherhood Without Banners and the Lannisters heading back to Casterly Rock. It could be that Arya is warging through Nymeria and, and, and Nymeria gets the chance to get at Ellen Payne's neck and rips his neck out and bam, you get a name off the list right there, Arya. Good job, I, I, I guess. <laughs> From afar, yeah, that's that's an excellent, I love that theory and that would, that would wrap that up in a Really perfect fashion, I agree. Yep, it sure will. So those are some of the more minor theories, or some of them are more major, but some of them are more minor. But one of the things we wanted to conclude this podcast episode with is this idea of Ned and his noble lies. In this chapter, the question of lying comes up with Arya admitting that she lied about what happened with Nymeria and accusing Sansa of lying about not knowing what happened with Joffrey and what Joffrey did to Micah. Ned, in turn, says two interesting things, and I think both of these things revolve around R plus L equals J. And the first thing he says is, we all lie. Or did you truly think that Nymeria ran off? We all lie, of course, is likely including himself in that. And then later on, a little bit more explicitly, he says, it was right, her father said. That is, it was right about lying about Nymeria. And even the lie was not without honor. So remember the context here, what Ned is talking about in lying. He had just finished telling Arya about the wolf's blood and about Lyanna and Brandon. The subtext reads that Ned is speaking as much about Arya and Sansa as he's speaking about his own lies. And this is a motif that gets repeated throughout Ned's arc when he dwells on the lies of his past. When Ned recalls the end of Robert's Rebellion, for example, uh, quote, troubled sleep was no stranger to him. He had lived his lies for 14 years, yet they still haunted him at night. That's from A Game of Thrones, Edward 2. And when he edits King Robert's Will, as Robert lays dying in A Game of Thrones, Edward 13, uh, there's the quote, Robert, Joffrey is not your son, he wanted to say, but the words would not come. The agony was written too plainly across Robert's face. He could not hurt him more. So Ned bent his head and wrote, but where the king had said, my son Joffrey, he scrawled my heir instead. The deceit made him feel soiled. The lies we tell for love, he thought. <laughs> and of course, the, you know, the, the, fundamental lie that Ned is probably talking about when it comes to himself is the parentage of Jon Snow, that he's been lying that Jon is his bastard for all these years when in fact Jon is Lyanna's son by Rhaegar. Uh, but notice that Ned says he lived with his lies, plural, for 14 years. Uh, so that 
refers to other lies, possibly. Yeah, it could. Uh, beyond beyond the uh, identity of Jon Snow, so that's interesting uh, to consider what they might be. What do you think, sir? I don't know what the other lies are, and, and or rather, I'm not sure what the other lies are. It could be something with Ashara, as we might find out eventually from our mutual friend, Chloe, at Lies and Arbor on Twitter, uh, as she's going to be detailing someplace down the road. Something more about Rhaegar than maybe has been previously known or theorized. I'm pretty curious about it, what it, what those lies might be. But I'm kind of curious. What do you think? Are there more lies that Ned is, is holding close to his heart here? I'm, I'm guessing something to do with, with Ashar and the Danes, I think, is, is a likely possibility there. Uh, it's implied in Catelyn's seventh chapter in The Clash of Kings when she talks with Jamie that Ned might have lied to her about the fate of Brandon and Rickard, yes. specifically how they died. Yes. So maybe he's talking about that. Maybe he kept that from his family uh, because it's just so traumatic, which of course links to his lie about John since it's, it's all lies about Robert's rebellion and the kind of traumatic things that happened during it. So that, if I had to guess, that'd be my guess. Yeah. Well, what's interesting though, too, is that Robert tells Ned later on in a game of Thrones that you can never lie for love nor honor, but that is a bit put at, that is put to the question in one key spot in a game of Thrones itself, where we see Ned lying for honor when he claims that Catelyn, his wife, took Tyrion captive at the crossroads at his command. And the quote is, I take it you know what Catelyn has done. I do. My lady wife is blameless, your grace. All she did, she did at my command. Well, no, she did not take Tyrion, Tyrion Lannister captive at his command. She took it at her own volition. And we'll have a whole lot of discussion of that when we come up to a Game of Thrones, Catelyn 5. So we see that later on that Ned is willing to lie for honor and for love. Willing to lie for the promise that he made to Lyanna Stark as she lay dying at the Tower of Joy. That's an interesting topic to keep in mind about Ned's lies and that how it likely revolves around R plus L equals J. And, you know, I think it's really interesting to that Ned is constantly haunted by his past and that when he's explicitly tying Arya to Lyanna Stark and is explicitly, or, or not explicitly, but subtextually talking about lies without honor about what Arya did is similar to the lie that he's telling, the noble lie that he's telling uh, on behalf of his sister and keeping Jon Snow alive. And I think that's a really fascinating topic to explore at some length. And I think it'll be have an interesting and great payoffs come when R plus L equals J gets revealed in the books for sure. Agreed. And obviously, yeah, the reveal of R plus L equals J, I'm interested in terms of how that plays out about Jon's thoughts and memories about Ned and how kind of the ghost of Ned comes up as that's kind of the completion of his story, too, is the reveal of the secret he was keeping all this time and why. And I think it's it's an interesting parallel, speaking of John, to when he talks with Sam about the lie Sam is going to tell regarding uh, Gilly and her child. He's going to pretend that it's his yes. as, a, as a way of getting getting them in at Horn Hill and keeping them safe. And that, too, is a, a lie told for a noble purpose. And Sam asks John if, you know, if, if, if there is such an ability in a lie. And, <clears throat> and John, like Ned, confirms that there is. And it's, it's for the same purpose as, as Ned's lie about R plus L equals J. It's for the sake of keeping a child safe. Yes. And for, that, for that sake of that love. So, so many kids and so many lies, but the, the same kind of theme persists down through the story. So I think that's I think that's a great parallel. And yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the payoff. Yeah. And the ultimate payoff is a sad one for A Game of Thrones in that Ned lies and says that Joffrey is the heir to Robert in front of all of the realm in order to save yep. his, to save his own kids, Sansa and, and Arya. He thinks that Arya is taken captive by the Lannisters at that point. So, yeah, that is that is an ultimate sad payoff for Ned, and it doesn't net him any personal gain in that he loses his head, but it does preserve the life of Sansa Stark for 
uh, for her time in King's Landing. But yeah, so I think that's something to keep in mind. And I think that about wraps us up for a Game of Thrones Aria 2. Thank you so much for everyone for listening to us and enjoying this episode, we hope. And we're, uh, yeah, again, we're, we're grateful for all of the all of your guys' ears and for all of your great comments, emails, and questions that you've been submitting to us. And we look forward to interacting with you guys for as many of these episodes to come. Yes, indeed. Keep the questions and comments coming. You can rate and review us on iTunes. Check us out on SoundCloud or Podbean or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, you can uh, find our Patreon if you haven't already checked it out at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIAF. There it is. Uh, you can find our email at notacastasoif at gmail.com or at notacastasoif on Twitter. Personally speaking, uh, I'm at poor Quentin on Twitter. You can also find me at poorquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is wars and politics of wordpress.com. So thanks again for listening to us. Join us next time for our introduction to the Dothraki Sea with Daenerys 3. And we're extremely pleased to say that a returning guest, LML, a.k.a. David, a.k.a. Lucifer Means Lightbringer, will be joining us for that episode, which goes in deep on prophecy and on the things that Danny is seeing out on the Dothraki Sea. And we can't freaking wait to do that episode and have you guys listen to that with us. Lots of talk about moon and meteors and whatnot. To come for sure. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Terrific chapter and LML is always great. So tune in next week, guys, and thanks for listening. See you then. Thank you to all of our patrons. We appreciate your guys' support very, very much. Our Lord's Commander, our Lord Hayden J, Lord Zach N, the Wolfman Zach, Lord Timothy W, and Lord Mark N. Thank you to our Kingsguard patrons, including Sir Dean W, Sir Philip T, Sir Heipner, Sir Captain Dusty Farts, Sir Peter F, Sir Muramets, and Sir Patrick D. Thank you to our Sworn Sword patrons, including Sir Andrew L, Sir Frank B, Sir Milady Snark Knight, Sir Peter H, Lady Ellie J, Lady Kinga T, Lady Rebecca L, Sir Shamik C, Sir Joseph B, Lady Kelly and Sir Derek L, Sir Nathan C, Sir Connor B, Sir Joseph B, Sir Tom M, Sir Jose Y, Sir Darren S, Sir Marcus T, Sir Andrew B, Lady Bree B, Lady Casey D, Lady B Word, Sir Derek H, Sir Josh, Sir Andrew B, Sir Blue Ringed Octoling, Sir Chris H, Sir Dean B, Lady Yvonne, Lady Melanie L, Sir James R, Sir Wideman, Sir Colin M, Sir Stephen R, Sir Jason P, Lady Amy H, Lady Vanessa C, Sir Junklord, Sir Adam A, Lady Rachel R, Sir Adam L, Sir Clint W, Sir Dan Z, Lady Fanny, Lady Catriona P, Lady Emma S, Sir Chris K, Sir Eli M, Lady June C, Sir Suki, Sir Rob L, Sir Alexane, Sir Travis M, Sir Keith J, Sir Matt L, Lady Joyce S, Lady Emily A, Sir Mangu the Mage, Sir Corey H, Lady Erin, Lady Courtney S, Sir Gibb, Sir Andre N, Lady Old Sadie, and Sir Manu. Our poor fellows are Sir Michael G, Lady Adriana B, Sir Patrick Y, That Raggedy Guy, Sir Barry L, Sir Mike E, Sir Nikki V, Sir Gregory K, Sir Alexander C, 
Sir First Name, Last Name, Lady Jordy P, Sir Tom R, Sir Alex L, Sir Damien P, Lady Roxanne C, Sir Frank A, Sir Clint P, Sir Christian B, Sir Jacob B, Sir James S, Sir, my lady, Morgan, Sir Henning N, Sir Cameron H, Sir Richard B, Lady Carly T, Sir Will, Sir Samuel D, Lady Brooke K, Lady Elise P, Sir Aki V, Sir Samuel K, Sir Peter C, Sir, my lady, Gorilli, Sir James G, Sir Colin C, Lady Mary W, Sir Aaron G, Sir, my lady, Space Coyote, Sir Mike M, Sir Bob S, Sir Florian K, Lady Emily M, Sir Alexander E, Sir, my lady, Spank my tater, Sir Matthew M, Sir Paulo D, Sir John, Sir, my lady, O2D, Sir Scott M, Sir Michael F, Sir Eric L, Lady Karen C, Sir Stephen G, Sir Matthew C, Lady Stephanie E, Sir John of the Misty Isle, Sir Thomas P, Lady Alaris Sand, Sir Eric H, Sir Herman K, Sir Michael M, Sir Callum S, Sir Nathan A, Sir Robert M, Sir John M, Lady Holly Hunt, Lady Leith H, Sir Craig W, Sir Aaron P, Sir, my lady, Chris Kloss, Sir, my lady, General Counsel to the Iron Bank, Sir Michael and Adrienne G, Sir Ryan I, Sir Nicholas E, Sir Calvin, Sir Devin G, Sir Samuel P, Sir Alderan L, Sir Michael T, Lady Liz F, Sir Tim S, Sir Pat S, Sir Chris, Sir Dunk the Lunk, Sir John H, Sir Sam K, Lady Lauren, Lady Rebecca B, Sir Robert B, Sir Chad C, Lord Brandon Brewer of the Castle Black Room, Sir Justin W, Sir MFN Moonboy, Sir Thomas C, Sir Grant P, Sir Ian C, Lady Mimi, Sir Eric E, Sir Seth, Sir John R, Sir Tim D, Lady Amy K, Lady LMC, Sir Stormtheus, Lady Allison M, Sir Brandon B, Sir Ty W, Sir Ian M, Sir Brian, Sir Aaron A, Sir Simon A, Sir Stephen J, Princess Leah, Sir Alexander W, Sir Jed S, Sir David B, Lady Monica M, Sir Cassidy D, Sir Pascal M, Sir, my lady, FP, Sir Brandon S, Sir Roger the Night Cook, Sir Eric R, Sir Daniel R, Sir Mark M, Sir Chris, Sir, my lady, Mendagas J, Sir Henri M, Sir Arlo B, Sir Michael M, Sir, my lady, Tower of John, Sir Jerry, Sir Jeremy T, Sir Patrick B, Sir Andrew B, Lady Iris F, Sir Ryan G, Sir Chase K, Sir Grayson H, Sir Chris M, Sir Mike S, Sir Louis A, Lady Leslie C, Lady Lee C, Lady Kimberly J, Sir Eric C, Sir Cody L, Sir Ben T, Lady Katie O, Sir, Molly, 1000 Eyes and One, Sir Joseph P, Lady Laurel A, Lady Laura L, Sir David G, Sir Ben, Sir TJW, Lady Julie R, Sir Connor M, Sir Mubarak M, Sir Matthew W, Sir Tim S, Lady Yvonne S, Sir Joseph G, Sir Christopher V, Sir Edward H, Sir Renny W, Sir Chris D, Sir Rasmus B, Sir Kevin C, Sir Rogan W, Lady Jojo D, Lady Sarah L, Sir Will C, Sir Brett A, Sir Andrew M, Sir Ian L, Sir Oliver S, 
Lady Randy H, Lady Amy D, Lady Jennifer W, Sir Gregor M, Sir John R, Lady Mercedine 1, Lady Beth B, Lady Siren 9, Lady Laurie, Sir Philip T, Sir Jacob R, Sir Ryan, Sir Nick S, Sir Kyle H, Sir Michael S, Sir Liam M, Sir Javi M, Sir Juhani S, Sir Patrick 84, Sir Nikolai H, Sir Jesse H, Sir Andrew Z, Sir, my lady, A. Sully 8018, Sir Alan C. Sir, my lady, Russian machine never breaks. Sir, my lady, Batija D. Sir Evan. Sir Clay S. Sir Casey M. Sir Steve M. Sir Fifth Horsbane. Sir Stephen B. Lady Rita Unbound. Sir Joshua M. Sir Taylor O. Sir Tom F. Sir Ewan S. Sir Andrew G. Sir Alex A. Sir Paul R. Sir Michael D. Sir Ray of Light, Sir Mark W.S.H., Sir Lone Stark State, Sir Gary M., Sir Adam M., Sir Peter M., Sir Joseph S., Sir Miley M.J.A., Sir Jordan R., Sir Mike M., Sir Mike S., Sir Choner, Sir Ocean G., Sir Andrew P., Sir Lightning Lord, Sir Mike, Sir Connor D., Sir Miley J. Byte, Lady Charlotte B., Lady Jennifer M, Sir Tim W, Sir Biffy Clegane, Lady Mary RH, Sir Nicholas M, Sir Malady Datura D, Sir Tama Onion Rings, Sir Kyle D, Sir Matt M, Sir Raymond K, Lady Stephanie H, Sir Malady Linus, Sir Scott R, Lady Chiara M, Lady Heather R, Lady Catherine A, Sir Andrew M, Sir Malady B Swing, Lady Rain F, Lady Alexandra M, Sir Johannes P, Sir Andrew S, Sir David K, Lady Bonnie, Sir Scott C, Lady Lucy S, Lady Sarah C, Sir Craig M, Sir Michael D, Sir Robert H, Lady Evelyn S, Lady Rachel A, Sir Fitter, Lady Sanrixian, Sir Derek O, Sir Cyrus M, Lady Dulcie L, Lady Erica P, Sir Malady Ephemerda, and Lady Christine H. And thank you to our Sparrow patrons, including Lady Radio Westeros, Sir LML, Lady Purple Kitty, Sir Colin W, Sir Joel D, Sir Bobby the Night Thrower, Sir Thomas M, Sir Alex H, Lady Maddie S, Lady Steph B, Sir Eraldo B, Sir Mark L, Sir Tom, Lady Tanfasi, Sir Gary G, Lady Francisca H, Sir Timothy U, Sir Lucas K, Lady Lola P, Sir Jason M, Lady Peels, Sir Lyre, Sir Kurt S, Lady Sarah L, Lady Sarah M, Sir Ryan N, Lady Sabrina S, Lady Laura H, Sir Thomas W, Sir Kathy S, Sir Milady History of Westeros, Sir Sam B, Sir Josh B, and Lady Louise M. Thank you all very much. <laughs>